Hello listeners, my name is David Blakesley and I am here to welcome you to our annual end of the year episode on Criterion Cast in which we get together a panel to talk about our favorite Criterion collection releases from 2021. This is the 11th year that we've done this. I was uh, fortunate enough to be a guest on the first episode, and I've made an appearance on every single one ever since. So really uh, honored by that and happy to serve as the host for this year's program. We had to edit a couple different segments together because of accommodating the schedule of such a large group. I think it came together pretty smoothly, but you might notice us jumping around here and there. Uh, We've gathered together the hosts of all of our currently streaming podcasts on the website, as well as a few longtime contributors whose voices you might recognize from years past. And I'll introduce all of those guests as we get into it uh, in just a moment or two. Uh, But I also want to say that this was a pretty stacked year, as recent years have been from the Criterion Collection. So strong of a slate as it was that not a single person mentioned the world of Wong Kar Wai box set, that extraordinary collection of films and its lavish packaging that released back in the spring. Uh, I guess that maybe also emphasizes the fact that this is a favorites episode. This isn't necessarily the best of in terms of some objective declaration or ranking. We do pick our top three films as well as our favorite covers and packages, but it's all pretty subjective and personal, and you'll get a chance to hear each of our guests make their case, so I hope you enjoy listening in over the next couple hours or so. Uh, we do thank you for your ongoing interest in our program and our and the support for those of you who contribute to our Patreon, and even those of you who just listen in and give us feedback uh, through social media or whatever way you do. It's greatly appreciated, so we hope you enjoy the episode. And uh, certainly look forward to another great year coming up in 2022. Uh, But for now, let's get on with the show. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Okay, well, we are getting ready to roll, so let's go ahead and kick it over to Arik Devins with your kind of opening statement, if you will. Uh, what's been your assessment of the year in Criterion in 2021? And by the way, what you been up to? We haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit, uh, uh, mostly over here in in you know fatherhood land. I uh, and and you know I was out of the country for like half a year. Um, back now and uh for criterion overall i would say yeah 2021 that's the year right 2021 was a was a great year i mean 4k we've been waiting to hear about that forever and uh and to see it come back and to see titles like citizen kane come back to the collection uh and even just yesterday's announcement of um the return of uh of a of a long missed melville film so that's very exciting. I think it's nice to see. I mean, the channel's been humming. It really feels like they've hit their stride there. It's it's it kind of like does what the Eclipse series was trying to do. Um, there's honestly too much content there. I never get to watch everything I want to. But um, it's it's really just nice to see a, a service that feels like it's growing and a company that feels like it's growing as opposed to maybe going the other way. I mean, I think. You know, it's hard to tell if this is just a moment for these boutique labels, but they're definitely having a moment. And I think that's really nice to see. And sort of this late renaissance of Criterion is just nice to, to be a part of. Um, as for me personally, yeah, uh, I I uh, I mostly am a dad to a toddler and another one on the way in January, late January. So um, 
yeah, mostly doing that. But I do still uh, keep my hand in. I, I still have my Fun Fact podcast, which uh, every month my friend Alan and I share interesting tidbits, uh, mostly of a humorous nature that we learned recently. So I'm still doing that. And I'm, I'm actually hoping to get I'm hoping we can get some mainline episodes going again uh, next year. I, I actually I, I really miss it. So, yeah, that's I think that's pretty much what's up with uh, me. Excellent. So you're back in the Bay Area, right? Just to be clear. I, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, as some listeners may know, I spent like uh, quite a bit of time in living in Germany and the Netherlands, uh, sort of uh, November of 2020 to April of 2021. But I am now back in my house in Berkeley for the moment. All right. Well, let's kick it over to Jordan, a former Bay Area resident. Uh, you've relocated this year. And we talked back in the summer when we did our Criterion Reflections episode on Solaris. But why don't you fill us in on what you've been up to and what's your take on Criterion 2021? Well, first, I'll just say congratulations, Arik, on the forthcoming second child in January. That sounds very exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, we're it's very close now. We're we're almost there. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be back on the show. I yeah, I did give a general update about relocating to Central Coast, Oregon, when we spoke on that uh, Solaris episode. But I can update and say, you know, life here is is pretty nice. It's it's uh, pretty much as I expected. It's it's a little bit lower key lifestyle. The weather is is very uh, amenable to, you know, my temperament. But also good news today for recording. We don't have a storm, so Wi-Fi should stay stable. So that's good. The news about the film I was working on, or the couple of films I was working on, um, I can say that the we definitely finished the first one. Uh, it's a little over 40 minutes, about I think about 47-minute runtime, which is sort of interesting because we accidentally made a feature. I think we'd, we'd set out to make a short, but the guidelines for a lot of film festivals are if it's 40 minutes or over, you can enter into the feature category. So we are, like I said, we have picture lock. We, we, have, um, we have everything pretty much done on it, and we're, we're starting to submit it. So that's a exciting phase to be at with that. Uh, living by the ocean uh, has just been a really nice change. I mean, I like the Bay Area a lot, but um, very glad to be here and uh, glad to be talking to you guys today. In terms of Criterion 2021, um, I think uh, there's going to be some other panelists who are going to maybe talk at length about the you know, ongoing refining of Criterion's relationship to its own canon, to film canon in general. So I thought I'd maybe touch upon a a different aspect of their operation. I mean, arguably, at least nearly as important to their brand as their curation is, you know, all of the attention they meticulously put into their uh, presentation of their offerings. And I think this was a really good year for that. I mean, it was also a good year for supplements and for commentary tracks, but I think it was a really great year for art direction and the thoroughness with which the releases were adorned with extra graphics and design choices. I mean, we haven't always seen this in the past, but cover inserts were often printed with images on both sides. So you could there was graphics behind the discs and behind the booklets. Uh, the, the discs themselves were often stamped with imagery. And again, it's not that we haven't seen that before, but I think regularly this was, was happening with most of the releases. I mean, maybe I inherited an accidental bias from which discs I was able to see in person, but it seemed to me there was a notable increase in the percentage of film packages that were sort of gifted with these additional pictures and maybe a more resolved interior design choice. Um, the inaugural 4K releases were obviously treated with a lot of care, like Menace to Society, which had this 
really gorgeous uh, interior, you know, even aside from the die cut cover, I thought that was a really nice package. And but then um, other small little special touches like the original cast album company disc looked like a tape reel. Nightmare Alley came with actual tarot cards. But maybe even more to the point, um, a release as small and maybe incidental to some collectors like Lestrada, because many collectors already own that from the Essential Fellini box set, just also had some really gorgeous new illustrations, not only for the cover, but also the interior image space, again, behind the disc and for the booklet. And the disc had this you know, beautiful cherubic display of Giulietta Messina's face. It was just a great year for Criterion Design. Excellent. Well, good to hear from you, Jordan. Uh, and Scott, the other member of our kind of Criterion cast main episode crew, uh, how's it been going for you, Scott? Uh, good. Yeah, I, I regret that I've not been able to uh, cast as much as I would like. Um, I, on uh, my personal life, uh, my career has really taken off the past years. So that's consumed a lot of my time. Um, but I've certainly missed talking to all of you guys. I'm glad we could make the time to do it today. Um, on the Criterion side of things, well, similarly, I haven't had as much time to dive into Criterion releases as I would like, but I have been very cheered by what they've put out this year. Um, particularly, I enjoy seeing the return of uh, full booklets to more releases, I feel like, than have been in the past couple of years. You know, some titles I'll be talking about today had really substantial booklets to go along with their releases. And also, um, maybe this is just, I don't think I'm just making this up, but there seems to be a, a new return to uh, dedicated supplements discs where, you know, in the past years, sometimes they would really try to pack everything onto one disc and we'd have compression issues with the main feature um, to try to make space for those. But increasingly, it seems like they're opening themselves up again to having that kind of second disc thing. One of those things that Criterion was really known for in the early DVD days of like, whoa, you're buying the movie and then they have a whole whole other disc of just extra stuff that's that's awesome um and now they're letting the feature really breathe on the main disc and um throwing the supplements to an additional disc i think the 4k releases are helping with that too where it's kind of become an industry standard to release uh editions with just the movie on the 4k disc and have a blu-ray disc of maybe it includes the feature maybe it doesn't but definitely includes the supplements um so i'm glad they're following that trend as well and um yeah i mean it, it was a really exciting year i really as with a lot of exciting years i regret that i wasn't able to uh take in more of their discs but uh what i did pick up and check out i was really enthused by fantastic all right let's hear from aaron west aaron a host of criterion now or i guess co-host to be technically precise there aaron what's your take on criterion in 20 20- thank you for that correction yes i'm definitely the co-host i've seated ownership <laughs> but um first off i just want to say glad to be in the same call with you guys uh especially the folks that we haven't talked to in a while i um, glad you're here and uh yeah we uh we have a co-host and have had a good time diving into criterion i've actually seen quite a few of them this year um, but i think the angle i want to uh, take as far as reflecting on 2021 is, you know, of course, we remind, remember the uh, New York Times piece, I believe that was last year, I think around the summer, uh, that was, uh, you know, pretty explosive and pretty damning, actually, um, accusatory towards the collection for really being color, colorblind and not realizing that they were excluding a lar- large body of work from creative filmmakers. And um, and there was a little bit of a backlash to the backlash, you know. There, yeah, I, I don't like this word, but a lot of people thought that the re, the reaction was, you know, woke. Uh, um, 
and I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I think one thing, so, so some of you know, I'm very, very involved with inclusion and diversity in my own life, in my local community. It's a, a passion of mine, and I just think that people should be better to each other and think about you know how other people see the world. Um, and I, I think that Criterion shares that thought process, uh, and I think that rather than reacting to something that came out very highly publicized, uh, you know, went viral, all that, I think they really did answer this correctly, uh, is they looked inward, and nobody's perfect. We're, we're all growing, and, and it, we can grow in our inclusion and, and diversity journey. And I, and I think they did, did realize, yes, they're, they're predominantly uh, Western, uh, European, you know, a little bit of Asian film, but, um, but there was a, lo a lot of even, um, you know, very little from Africa and other countries, uh, very few black filmmakers. And I think that with that curation, now, of course, it'll take eons for them to really write that ship and uh, and have equitable um, uh, equitable collection but i think they have made profound steps this year and you'll actually see this reflected in, in one of my uh, top choices so so kudos to them just for thinking outside the box and not just being the bergman fellini uh, uh, uh channel or uh, collection even though you know we're gonna have those we're gonna have the one car wise we're gonna have the classic hollywoods these you know these staples like citizen kane you know they're still putting that out, but they're also putting out interesting and, frankly, great films that deserve uh, inclusion. So, so yeah, kudos to Criterion on that. I wanted to, uh, before we move on, if you don't mind, David, I wanted to, sure. uh, on that topic, just mention, like, I think that it um, it's it's where the collection comes from is a specific view of a, of a canon to use a term that I think we use without realizing it's an ecclesiastical term from the Catholic church, but um, <laughs> yes. they, they, you know, there was an idea of sort of what represented cinema and what was great cinema from a non, non-commercial focused lens, you know, from the, the art house, you know, uh, uh, what is it? A historical collection of important cinema, whatever, however criterion bills themselves. And I think that um, there we're, we're realizing that there's now a movement or a shift from saying, okay, we're just going to keep looking at the same list of, of directors and saying, this is it, mm -hmm. this is what matters. And instead saying, yeah, this is what matters. These, nothing is going to make me not like Bergman. Right. But like, and I, and I don't have to, but also saying that there is a ton of films from around the world that are incredible that are you know on that same level or better from people we haven't heard of for for all kinds of the reasons we know due to you know historical exclusions historical blind spots modern day blind spots unintentional and intentional biases and i think to aaron's point they've really taken that challenge to not just say okay we're gonna throw a couple crumbs out here to try to get bad press to shut up but instead really thought about okay what how do we want to move forward given our role as a sort of um upholder or trusted voice in in the view of what what a modern uh list of relevant important films might look like and how do we diversify our audience's view and lens into the world as opposed to nar keep narrowing it ever ever further into like the most obscure you know short film Fellini did for a, a you know a corporate commercial for some coffee company you know 40 years ago or something <laughs> like that um, and instead say you know what you you haven't seen you saw one Osman Sembe film here's another one it's awesome you saw you know um that we're not just going to have black cinema but we're going to have black queer cinema and, and this kind of stuff and I think it's been it's been incredibly rewarding to see and we still get all the like Aaron said, we still we're still going to get the beautiful 4K Citizen Kane. So it's it's all good. It's just more things at the table, which is the whole point. Let's just build a bigger table. 
Yeah, I appreciate both you guys' insights. More uh, inclusion, go Criterion. Thank you. Is how I'll wrap that up. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And really nicely said, Ark. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That female laugh that you just heard there is Jill Blake. Jill, welcome to Criterion Cast uh, year end episode. This is your debut. Yes, my debut. And. I'm really happy to have you on board. So tell us a little bit about your take on Criterion in 2021 and anything else you feel like saying as your opening bid here. Yeah. So first of all, thank you guys for having me uh, on this show. And I just want to say that it's been really awesome uh, to be on the, the show with Aaron. I've had a lot of fun and uh, I kind of, you know, earlier in the year, Aaron and I, I think this is before he brought me on as a co-host. I, I, uh, came came on and I was just talking about pretty much I hated movies you know like I had gotten gotten <laughs> yeah. in a funk where I couldn't I couldn't focus uh long enough on film and I was just kind of down with it and so um this being on the show has really kind of rekindled my love not that it was ever gone to begin with but definitely has helped me get back in the mood so to speak um as for Criterion, uh, what they've done this year, I just kind of want to add on to what uh, Arik and Aaron have said about their uh, work towards making the canon uh, more representative of what's actually out there. Um, there's actually been, just generally speaking, when you're talking about uh, film history, film canon, there has been a, a push to... Um, Let's let's shed some of the, uh, you know, we don't all have to just say D.W. Griffith is the greatest filmmaker ever. We can take, <laughs> you know, we can take Birth of a Nation off the syllabus in film in film class because, you know, all right, there might be some neat little things he threw in there, but he wasn't the first. And so there um there are some people that are trying to uh, very actively uh, educate people that there there were other groundbreaking filmmakers many of them women and uh, many of them black um, that you know their contributions to film kind of were um, suppressed and um, so that's just kind of been the general tone um, in the film circles especially uh, online um, so I, I am very happy that Criterion has, kind of taken that on they have responded to the criticism they have done I think an exceptional job um, making their lineup more diverse and even on the channel having um, the programming on the channel has been superb Um, and it's it is almost impossible it is impossible to watch it all there's such um, a broad um, uh, offering on the channel but also, they've really done a great job of adding more female filmmakers. Um, so, you know, this year we have another Dorothy Arzner um, in the collection. We have Gina Prince uh, Bythewood. Uh, we have Dee Rees. And then another Jane Campion is coming. And so they're doing a, a, a really great job of uh, Lynn Ramsey. So, I love seeing that also uh, happening, more diversity on on that front. Um, but at the same time, I'm the classic Hollywood person, so I love seeing all of those uh, 
<laughs> classic films that are maybe not so diverse <laughs> um, coming into the collection. And um, so I, I do like that they're, you know, holding to that commitment to make things more equitable, make things more diverse, but they're also not forgetting that, you know, we've got, we still have some great movies that came out um, and classic Hollywood titles as well. And they do such a wonderful job. Of course, they're not the only label that does this. And, you know, between them and Kino and Warner archive and Olive films and, um, you know, indicator, they are releasing some really deep cut classics, um, but no one does it quite like Criterion. So I'm very glad that they are still putting out some wonderful releases. So that's it. Excellent. All right. Well, let's kick it over to Josh Hornbeck. Josh, how are you doing? Host of Criterion Channel Surfing. Nice to have you on the show again. Thank you. It's really, really great to be here. Uh, I've always uh, been excited to uh, to be a part of this. And uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I really want to just... Uh, echo uh, kind of everything that's been said uh, that you know this this effort especially this year I think bringing on um, kind of new curators uh, has really I think um, just increased I think the the quality and the the just the reach of the the types of titles that we're getting with Criterion and, you know, we're recording this the day after the uh, announcements were made uh, for March of 2022 and we're getting things, you know, getting films from Hungary that weren't on some of our radars. Uh, we're getting uh, more uh, films from black filmmakers. We're getting all of these great things that that were that were uh, outgrowths of what's been happening over 2021. And to me, it's just really exciting to see that. Um, and I feel like 2021, we also saw more of the um, more films from the major studios uh, come into the Criterion Collection. We saw them getting that, which has been really exciting to see them get more classic Hollywood, as Jill was saying. Um, seeing more of the Criterion Laserdisc titles that uh, were part of the initial line of Criterion releases come back into the collection has really been fun to see as well. So, you know, just seeing this, um, this breadth of, of titles come and uh, to see, again, as, as uh, Jordan and Scott mentioned uh, the the types of supplements and uh, commentaries come back. Just seeing all of this uh, this wealth of material that I came to Criterion for in the first place when I started collecting Criterion titles uh, to to get all of those con contextual um, things. To me, this has just been a great year, uh, and I've been making some great discoveries um, that uh, has been really fun for me. So, yeah, I and and their deals with streaming services also this year, I think, has been a really uh, exciting thing to see, to, to get titles that would only exist on a streaming platform, uh, and now we're getting uh, those films with those supplements uh, as well that we might not get otherwise. Uh, Speaking again, of like I, I Amazon and Netflix it. and those types of and big, big yeah. hitters out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
yeah to to get a to continue those partnerships and to be continuing to get a bunch of those those films in uh getting getting physical releases of those for me this has been a a really great year for uh what the collection is uh is bringing to the table excellent well it looks like our fandom is all confirmed for at least 2022 right we're all in agreement (laughs) it's been a knockout year for the criterion collection so let's go ahead and start getting into some of the specifics hey Hey, yeah go ahead can we just say agree that we can summarize 2021 collectively with a citizen kane orson wells clapping gif Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, except with a little bit more sincerity, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not performative. Than, than, yeah. Than Kane was. <laughs> All right, Trevor. Well, let's go ahead and get you into the mix here. Uh, welcome back for another episode of uh, Favorites of the Year here on Criterion Cast. Best let's time kinda, of the year. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a wonderful tradition. Absolutely. So. Let's just start by hearing a little bit from you as far as, um, you know, what what are your general thoughts on the Criterion Collections 2021 slate, what you saw from the channel this year, before mm-hmm. we get into the specific favorites. So just kind of give us a, your perception and overview. Well, it reminded me how little I know about film, um, honestly. There is so much out there, David. Just the minute you start to think, or at least this has been my experience, that, okay, I've kind of got a good handle on things they're introducing new filmmakers left and right to me from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of, of nationalities and, and ethnicities and um, perspectives and not just like new filmmakers from the past. It just blows my mind both on the channel and in their mainline releases. It's been so much fun. And I don't, you know, we, we, they've maybe had a little bit of criticism, like, oh, are they now just going out and getting films by, you know, people of color just to fit quotas? I, I guess if so, I, I'm glad for the results. It's the right decision because, again, this has been such an, a rich year for me in terms of exploring uh, films from people of color, for example. It, it has been a really great year from from my perspective and of course there's also just consistently reminding me that even in the areas where i feel comfortable there are so many gems that i had no idea um would delight me as much as they do (laughs) it's been a great year excellent well yeah i am and i guess for my opening statement just kind of my general sort of take on criterion i'll echo what what you've said and i know that others have already chimed in about the uh, you know the the outreach and the the uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the diverse range of offerings, uh, bringing films that may not even always have uh, the the greatest fame and notoriety, but bringing them to a, an audience, kind of blessing them, if you will, with the Criterion imprint, and saying, check this out. There's something deep, something substantial, uh, something that will truly broaden your horizons to be found here. Um, with that, and I, and again, I totally, uh, endorse and embrace what Criterion's doing. I also have a bit of a confession to make mm-hmm. that this is probably the least I've been able to keep up with the new releases as far as watching them as the year goes on. I did a little bit of a cramming over the last few weeks as I sort of set my regular podcast, uh, routines aside. But, um, you know, the truth is I have spent less time just watching all the Criterion films for a variety of different reasons. I've been spending more time 
reading. I've also been just trying to find other things to do besides screen time. Um, mm-hmm. And when I have done movie watching, it has been more deep dives into the films that I've been talking about on my podcast, um, whether that's inside the box with you or my criterion reflections. I've done some box sets. I did a set of films uh, outside of the criterion collection. When I talked about the Jean-Luc Godard and kind of that mm-hmm. interim between the late sixties and early seventies. So, you know, there's been a lot of releases that I honestly just have not yet gotten to. And I look forward to uh, viewing them in years to come and fully appreciating them. I guess maybe one analogy would be like the Lone Wolf and Cub series, which when it came out back in 2015 or 2016, I, I bought the set, but I didn't really dig into it until, you know, until it came up in my podcast queue. And then I said, wow, this is one of the very best releases from that whole year. But it didn't even <laughs> get consideration when I made my best of list. So as I get into, uh, you know, naming my picks in a little bit here, uh, it'll be basically going back to what's kind of comfort home base for me. Uh, uh-huh. Because I just really enjoyed those particular films. They, they meant a lot to me on a personal level. But I really do appreciate and respect the, uh, you know, the open doors that Criterion has provided by putting films out there that are maybe outside of that auteurist wheelhouse that it still feels like, you know, home base for me. So yeah, uh, it's been a fantastic year, but I think I still have lots and lots of catching up to do before I can give <laughs> an authoritative best, well, of, but I certainly have favorites. It right? can't feel like a chore, right? This is right. all because of just the joy that it brings. And if it ever mm-hmm. started to feel like you were, you know, oppressed <laughs> by, <laughs> yeah. by, it, uh, which it can, I think sometimes feel that way. Like, Oh no, I, I, I don't even want to know what their new releases are going to be. You know, today was a release day when we were recording mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. and it can sneak up on you. And uh, if it, if it can't be as much a celebration as it has been in the past, then it, it bears to, to step back and see what's going on. So, but I'm glad you're still liking uh, oh, for like sure. it. And I know you are, you're engaged. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a great, but I, I do find that I think I, my, my preferred style of movie watching isn't so much consumption. It's, it's an exploration yeah. and investigation. I, I, I like watching the same movie two or three or four times and really digging into it along with all the supplemental features. And that's again, kind of why, the well, picks that I had kind of came up that way. We all benefit because of your movie watching habits and the way you do it. So, <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and get into some of the uh, sort of the extra context there, the, the packaging and the covers. Uh, this is kind of typically how we open our episodes or our conversations of our favorites of the year. Rather than talking about films right off the bat, let's just talk about our favorite. Uh, sort of products, if you will, as far as the the box, the cover art, however you want to put it, whether it's the image on the cover or just the whole kit and caboodle that's put together there. Uh, Let's go back to Arik. Arik, what is your favorite cover or packaging of 2021? Yeah, it's funny because I don't actually own this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm pretty up to date, Uh, you know, as, as many folks on the call will know that I am like David, a completionist, and uh, I, I think I'm, you know, 10 away from being complete or something like that. But I don't have this one because it is uh, also in a box set and there were no added features for it. So you say, okay, well, why, why, why are you drawing attention to this? And the film in question is Trances, uh, the, um, the, the film by Ahmed El Manouni. And I, I'm drawing attention to it for two reasons. One, um, it is one of my 
all-time favorite Criterion discoveries. It was included in the first World Cinema Project box, and just from the moment I put it on, I was like, uh, I was completely captivated by this film. So entranced, you might say. I was entranced. Yes, I I left that pun on the table, and I regret that (laughs) bitterly. But I'm glad you were there. See, you've been a dad longer than me, so you were ready to do this. Speaking of uh, of representation, this is an earlier example of Criterion opening folks' eyes to some place that gets very little shine in the uh, in historically from a film perspective, which is the Middle East, or North Africa in this case, Morocco, and it is it's just a phenomenal documentary. But the reason I'm talking about it, of course, for this particular part of the the program today, is the cover, which just knocked me completely uh, off my my uh, knock my socks off i i almost bought it. it it really does not have any as far as i can tell it's completely a repackaging of the film in the overall box set so there's just no good reason for me to buy it but i might do it anyway because it's just such a perfect cover it's it i i just you know i was kind of like in in preparation for this episode i was just kind of looking at the collage of all the covers of the year that you know that ryan makes and, and all this kind of stuff and i'm just you just your eyes are immediately drawn to it it's it's such an unconventional from a american perspective co- color combination of of this orange and the purple and it's at you know the silhouette of the band with their sort of um again atypical for western uh, eyes instruments and the the way that the the Arabic is presented, the way that the title treatment is done, I just find it completely perfect. The single star, just everything about it, I think it's beautiful. I'm also kind of um, I'll admit I I have a little bit of like Moroccan style and art uh, appreciation in me. I just love that that style. Um, maybe that's partially because uh, uh, you know, I spent some portion of my youth in Israel where like one sixth of the population. Uh, has Moroccan heritage and so you see a lot of this kind of art and style but it's just I think it's absolutely beautiful and as well I really am excited to see this particular film get this sort of uplift treatment uh, pulled out of the box set you know we saw some films like that this year like The Ascent uh, and and coming from the Eclipse series and some other films getting this kind of uh, graduation present if you might as you might say and this is an example of that i think it's what a worthy film for it and what a what an absolutely beautiful packaging so i I just love it and i if anyone out there hasn't watched the film and you're a fan of any kind of concert documentary or band documentary including like we just you know saw the last waltz is coming out trances is an absolute must watch it's so good beautiful all right jordan artist art critic uh your opinion on these matters is always of special interest to me so what's your favorite cover and packaging of 2021 well by far my favorite cover of the year is that striking image george pratt created for the lucina visconti film the damned uh this is this is the cover but it's also because you you incorporate packaging as part of this category and i think this definitely applies to my choice because there's additional imagery used inside as a poster on the disc itself but starting with the cover here um it's this uh it's this image of like ingrid tuline's character grasping with both hands at this human skull and pressing against her lips it's it's you know it's borrowing this baroque melodramatic language from the film and 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 using it to express this this willing relationship with darkness you know this 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 possessive embrace of like the cheapest power one can find right the the death of others and the death of oneself and uh, it's it's just a really compelling beautiful illustration um i'm a little confused as to how it's made i think pratt is mixing some 
you know, hand-done drawing with maybe Conti crayon and and maybe gouache, and then maybe there's some digital coloring on top, but it's it's a mixed media piece regardless of exactly what goes into it. It's really dark, so the only thing, the only sort of asterisk to this is I would say like this and also maybe Death in Venice look a little bit more retinal um, and brighter online than they do in print. I mean, printed media is always prints so much darker because the ink just oversaturates. So I don't know if, if in the future, you know, it, the, the files could be brightened slightly or the gain could be, uh, you know, less than maybe by 10%. Um, and it would look a little bit more like, um, in person, what it looks like online. But the, the motifs here are continued, um, on the interior insert in this grayed out image that is more a literal dance with death or dance with a demon. And what's kind of interesting about this next step of, of, of the, the images that Pratt has created is, is the demon figure, is, his face is almost completely obscured in, in darkness, but he's starting to sort of cover his face. So like this element of shame is, is creeping into uh, the depiction here, and that's carried forward in full or matured in full into the image that's used on the poster. This is one of those booklets that's not stapled, that you, you unfold it completely, you know, Ryan Gallagher's favorite, uh, until you get a, a very large poster image. And in that picture, you've got a figure that is fully protecting their face. They're, they're tucking their, their face against their arm. And then there's this... Um, how would you describe this? Like this giant skull in uh, a stormtrooper helmet. That's like it's like pushing against her back as if it was both a big blood red moon, but also a kind of avalanche, just that like completely consuming her. And it's uh, all the imagery is uh, well, I wouldn't say all of it, but it's predominantly done with a blue and red palette. And I think that also you know, successfully comments on the the visual atmosphere of the film where even daylight feels artificial in this film movie like it feels always nocturnal like the the leftover light from a hallway sconce that someone forgot to turn off and um, i love the textures of the painterly brushwork i love the sense of form the compositions and the choice of the limited palette uh it's just it's it's a beautiful striking image really conveys the texture of the film and that's why it's my number one I think we should all apply for continuing education credits. That was just brilliant, Jordan. Thank you so much for your <laughs> wonderful analysis of the of the artwork there. No, seriously, just loved listening to your your insights there. So thank you very much, uh, Scott. Let's kick it over to you. What's your favorite package for the year? Oh, of course, point to the guy least equipped to talk about visual design <laughs> after the guy most <laughs> equipped to talk about visual design. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, uh, I I I really loved the cover for uh, Flowers of Shanghai. Um, it's real pretty. I'll try to go a little deeper. Um, I, I think besides it being real pretty, which certainly reflects the film, which is itself real pretty, I couldn't quite talk myself into putting it on my best of the year list. I kind of agree with some of the problems about the transfer. Nevertheless, it is the best available edition of this film by far that's been released so far, so I highly recommend people check it out because it is a masterpiece. And uh, yeah, the cover really well reflects not only the beauty, but also kind of the mystery at the core, this kind of way that uh, men continue to 
try to own and possess and and, uh, fully see women and never really do. You know, you have all these kind of faces of this woman buried in the cover. Like I was looking at it last night and like I kind of lost track of how many faces there are. You can just keep staring at it and keep seeing new avenues, which again is very reflective of the film as well. Um, So yeah, it was, like I said, a really lovely film that I've always, always loved. And I was pleased to see Criterion reflected it so well in the visual design there. All right. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Aaron and Jill, you both kind of came to the same conclusion. Uh, Maybe that's a bit of a giveaway there. But uh, Aaron, I'll let you get started with your favorite packaging of the year. (laughs) Okay. So, yes, uh, Citizen Kane. um, First off, I have to preface my remarks by saying, Hey, uh, dude, bros, just chill. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not calling out males in in particular. I, I think this was universally. Uh, speaking of Criterion going viral, I think this is their viral moment uh, for 2021. Was the reaction to uh, this cover? And in fact, it, it actually got some press uh, that you know, sort of half press, where they you know they quote tweets and that sort of thing. But um, but Citizen Kane. Of course, it's going to have the letter K. Of course, it's not going to have that clapping GIF or you know some of the more iconic images that just wouldn't make sense. I mean, it's it's such a such a massive film, uh, such such a massive return to the collection that I think so, like a bold font, which is the font of the the the, the title uh, card of the film, um, it, it works. And also, don't judge a cover or well, a book by its cover. I guess does fit in here, because obviously there was going to be A and E in the in the, the package. So my my vote for Kane is actually I, I do love typography and I, I love the um, the way it just kind of it really stands out in the cover, especially when you have it in person. I mean, it's a it's a big K, um, but. Also, just the entire package, the way it folds out, uh, how it has the images. I've, I'm, not, I'm not looking at it right now, but I believe it has him with his uh, his, his presidential campaign. Um, it has, or the governor campaign has the um, snow globe, I believe, and I believe the other one is the child. And then right in the middle is the um, the booklet, which is just beautiful size. Um, and then, of course, the the foldouts. Each film, each, each of the four discs, uh, goes with the letter. So it's really just brilliant design and. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think the cover itself just looks beautiful as well. So, Jill, yeah, you feel the same? Yeah, and you know, I was actually torn between this and Nightmare Alley for my cover, but I went with I went with Kane because eighty years later, this movie is still pissing people off. You know, like <laughs> Orson Welles is still ruffling feathers. And what else are you going to do for this movie? You know, this is this is appropriate. This the character is larger than life. Um, the film is there's there's no way to do it justice. Uh, you know, all the other releases that have come out on Blu-ray, like the I think it's the Warner um, release or MGM. Um, you know, they show the picture of him. You know, in in front of his campaign poster. All right. Or they'll show the that one promo of him standing, you know, on top of all the newspapers. But, you know, if they had done gone that route here, I would have been disappointed. So, you know, and immediately when you see this K, you see the title card. So, um, so they pull that um, imagery into this release. And, you know, what Aaron's talking about, the foldout, um, 
you know, I do love the packaging of this um, in terms of <laughs> whenever you, I need that Citizen Kane fix, I need to quickly access this movie. I'm going to be really ticked off because you have to very <laughs> carefully <laughs> unfold. Although it's, it is it is not as challenging as that uh, Monty Python flying circus box set where you take the lid off and it explodes. And then it takes, right, yeah. you know, and then, of course, like a month later, they released it all without that stupid box. But um, but I do love the the four. Um, well, actually, the five images that they have selected here. The one of him as a child is just so sweet um, and a little emotional. And um, so I do love all the photos that they've selected here. Um, just showing, you know, obviously, Orson Welles is not playing the child, but the other three photos, we kind of see the the aging they did. Um, the booklet is fantastic. I love this photo. Um, uh, and it's actually part of uh, Bilga Abiri's uh, essay, <laughs> the photo of, of Kane, like lunging down the stairs at, at Getty's. That's great. Um, just the whole thing is, is beautiful. And a lot of, awesome people were uh, part of this uh, release and uh, the film looks stunning. So uh, that is, that is my favorite cover slash packaging of the year. Excellent. All right, Josh, walk us through your favorite uh, shelf product there. Uh, what, what uh, struck you this year uh, with criterion packaging? Yeah. My favorite was the Melvin Van Peebles essential films uh, box set. Uh, I was really taken by the use of the imagery created by Emery Douglas. Uh, he is a graphic artist who was the minister of culture for the Black Panther Party. And the I just was struck by the way that the imagery used echoes a lot of the imagery used in uh, the the... 60s and 70s uh, protest uh, posters and uh, iconography uh, of the time and especially kind of going through some of his earlier work and I spent some time uh, over the last bit kind of looking at his earlier work and how the the entire package is uh, really designed to echo some of the 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 militancy the uh, radicalism and the uh, the just the showing how groundbreaking uh, Melvin Van Peebles' work really was at the time and uh, I just think tying that into the Black Power movement tying that into the uh, the the fight for black liberation at the time i just think it's uh it's a really uh great choice and uh i think uh the the entire package the screen print look uh the the graphic choices are just fantastic and uh the the booklet is great um yeah i just i think this is a a really really uh striking um set and uh images as well yeah, and of course, um, you know, good timing under you know bad circumstances, and that the uh, the set was released right towards the end of Melvin Van Peebles' life. But it's really great that he got that honor, and that the artwork was done by somebody you know very you know sympathetic and aligned with the with his artistic mission as well. So yeah, excellent choice. Yeah, 
All right, Trevor. Well, it's time for you to let us know. What was your favorite cover slash packaging of 2021? Uh, all right. my This was kind of tough for me. A lot of years, there are a few that really stand out and I have a hard time eliminating. Um, I'll be honest, this year there were more that I was like, oh yeah, that's a good cover, but none that I thought I would hang that on my wall necessarily. I could be just mm-hmm. oversimplifying. But when you start to get into the packaging, the one that I had the most delight in opening up and w- looking through how it all worked together was the release of Jacques Rivette's Celine and Julie Go Boating. Mm. It's kind of got that weird paintbrushy almost watercolor yeah. watercolor <laughs> uh, water uh, cover, which I know has gotten some criticism, but it still is fun and whimsical. Mm. But when you crack this this uh this open which i'm doing right now and you see the covers of the two discs and how bright they are and you see all of the rest of the bright rainbowy colors that go throughout the booklet um the the art underneath the discs in the booklet from you know the, on the transparent side of the of the the blu-ray case i love this introduction to this film you know this box this uh this treasure chest of of an experience here and i think it captures the mood that i felt as i watched the whole film of just fun even when i didn't know what the heck was going on at times (laughs) i just thought this is fun this is a splash of color this is a splash of paint this is with a with little regard as to exactly how it comes out or its exact representation of reality or even its exact beauty Mm -hmm. it's just fun and and let's let's go out there and so this that was my choice for the my favorite cover and packaging of the year yeah exuberant is the word that comes to mind mm-hmm, and, uh, that's a good one. I, and that was definitely one that was a close consideration as i kind of contemplated my choices but the one i went with is uh yeah similar to you I, I didn't see as many that were like you know, stunning artwork, but I, I went with uncut gems, <laughs> which is kind of a, a crazy one because I, and, and first of all, I say I had never seen this movie until I watched the criterion version of it. Uh, I know that there was some kind of, a, I guess there's a switch of the original cover, mm-hmm. which I think the original announced cover was going to be something along the lines of the poster, Adam Sandler with the little, you know, tampon or whatever up his nose and kind of a stark black and white image. And then they changed it to this kind of more of a grinning. I don't know if he's got like a toothpick or a match or maybe it's a scar on his lip there, but it's got this metallic sheen over it that I thought just kind of, you know, fits the themes. I mean, I knew enough about the movie to know that a, it's very stress inducing Mm -hmm. and B it has to do with jewelry and high-end uh, marketing of of you know watches and and kind of you know chains and all that kind of paraphernalia that's pretty popular with some folks in the community but as i opened this thing up i was just absolutely blown away by the the the, the blinginess of it all <laughs> which which i guess is again how we bling uh, you know makes makes perfect <laughs> sense for the film and for the packaging it's got this little gold encrusted Furby when you open up the digipack there to start off. And then inside you've got some of that mystical weirdness that's going on as you sort of get into that microscopic level of what's happening inside the gems, these kind of amorphous blobs with all their weird colors and, and just kind of the, you know, the, 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 the 
sort of the, the chemical and mineral nature of what's happening in these uh, fascinating objects. The discs themselves are, you know, again, kind of colorfully uh, illustrated, uh, you know, sort of impressionistic, almost like brackage-like screenshots uh, from some of that imagery there. But but really the kicker for me was that catalog, <laughs> the KMH Gems and Jewelry. I'm holding <laughs> it in my hands right now. Super glossy. And it really, it just has all the looks of, of uh, a, a merchandise catalog with all of this high-end, gaudy ridiculous uh you know gold diamond encrusted uh you know of course a, a good essay but i just really absolutely <laughs> laughed so much as i just opened this thing up and saw the order form all the different <laughs> ropes uh you know just it just a brilliant uh packaging of a film that i know has a lot of really strong adherence i enjoyed it i i i, I actually i mean it is stress inducing i suppose but i just found it all pretty maniacal and pretty pretty entertaining honestly uh you know again putting myself in the real life situation that would be unbearable to heck to mm-hmm. live this guy's life or to travel in those circles but uh yeah that was just quite a quite an amazing uh coup in, in terms of how they put this thing together uh, you know, I'm not like a huge Adam Sandler fan, so it's not like I want to put a poster of his mug up on my wall. But I really <laughs> just enjoyed the way that this all came together and how it kind of showed off the, the the winning qualities of this particular film. Well, you probably just sold it copy because I didn't have that one yet. And I have seen the film on Netflix. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I don't necessarily need to make that a priority. But now... No, I think I do. Yeah. And, and it has it, my my little fetish here is whenever they put the artwork that goes inside the box. Talk about inside the box. <laughs> there, there it is. It's not just plain paper inside there. It's it's got that kind of bluish, minerally mm-hmm. gem like quality inside. So, uh, yeah, they went all out, and it's of course one of their first 4K releases, which is another pretty big yeah breakthrough for Criterion for this year. Maybe other guests will have mentioned that as well. So those are my favorite. That's my favorite cover of 2021. Nice. Okay, it is time now to start our actual top three countdown. So let's kick it right back to the top of the list here. Uh, Arik, what's your number three of the year? So my number three favorite film of the year. It was a hard year to pick three, I have to say. Just three, I should say. (laughs) Um, But my number three was uh, The Parallax View, the Alan Pakula film. I, I chose this well, first of all, it's 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 a great film. Uh, you know, it it's uh, it's the middle of his paranoia trilogy, starting with Clute, which I think came out on Criterion last year, two years ago, a couple and, years maybe. Yeah, yeah, and um, all the President's Men, which maybe we'll see someday, but as the biggest of the three, is probably the hardest for them to get the rights to. But th- this film, it's. It's it first of all it's a it's a wonderful film and, and man he was really going from leading man to leading man you know you got Donald Sutherland in in Clute you got uh, Warren Beatty here and then Robert Redford and and Dustin Hoffman and all the President's Men it's quite an quite a who's who of seventies uh, you know heartthrobs but um, but I think the the reason this one spoke to me for this year is just the way in which we're seeing the sort of through line from the seventies. Alienation and paranoia, sort of films, generally speaking, and sort of conspiracy obsession with what's going on in the world today. And I think watching this film in 2020, 2021, 
it hits different than it did perhaps in certain periods of time between 1974 and now. I think the the overwhelming sense of dread, the overwhelming sense that there are shadowy figures doing things that, you know, the way in which I think people want there to be big, big secrets behind big events, even though oftentimes big events actually are have very minor and 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 easily seeable causes, you know, the way in which people don't really have a good grasp of causality when it comes to sort of world altering things. You know, as we see with this coronavirus pandemic that, you know, everyone just wants there to be something else going on because the reality of it is almost mundane in a way that is hard to connect to the massive outsized effects. So I think um, that is a lot of why this film's release sort of spoke to me at this moment in time, on top of the fact that it's just a super cool, super interesting film with a I think fairly daring sort of conclusion. I, I'm not going to spoil it for folks, but it 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 you know it'll surprise you. I think a little bit, and it's it's just uh, you know it 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 kind of represents the beginning in some sense of where we're at right now. I think the 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 disillusionment of of a combination of Watergate and Vietnam and you know the assassinations of of Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Robert Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in that era, you can really kind of see how that how that brought us to now. So, you know, mm. definitely uh, resonant with the times we're in. Yeah. Jordan, give us your number three. All right. So my number three pick is uh, a surprising one to me. I didn't expect to like this film this much. I'd never seen it before. And it is The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, directed by Jack Arnold. I didn't know much about it. I just thought it would be kind of a, a fun sci-fi romp and it turns out it's actually a much denser film than that uh, very much more about the difficulty of fitting into the world you know whether that's the inability to you know be available for a simple kiss and allow that kiss to feel familiar and in alignment with your body and the body of another or the ability to look someone directly in the eye or them you or the way in which you know, seemingly familiar, innocuous things can become out of sync with you and alien and threatening and even deadly. And there are surprising moments of pure cinema in this film. There's, um, without spoiling too much for anyone who may not have seen it, there are long sequences um, about halfway through the film where there's not even the that sort of um, voiceover narration that, that kind of fills the story out in the beginning. And we just see the the protagonist interact with his surroundings in in a really simple, beautiful, wonderfully lensed uh, long sequence. And I was just so taken with my ability to read deep meaning into this film. And I, I, I don't think that's me having fun with it. I think it was intended to be read that way. Um, and by the end of the film, um, you know, there's there's a... This, maybe a slightly forced message of, of finding peace with not being able to fit into the world, but uh, it all basically kind of worked for me. And I started to see it maybe not so much as a man who was shrinking, but a world that was enlarging, that uh, it was the world around him that was changing and um, becoming unmanageable and foreign and i think that in a similar way that Arik just talked about it really resonates with 
current events. So you didn't hold Spine 1100 against it, huh? <laughs> as far as... <laughs> <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was another little little highlight of the year, the uh, crestfallen uh, response that uh, that blessed Spine number got bestowed on this obscure little nugget there. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jordan. Scott, give us your number three. Yeah, um, my number three is a long, long, long time favorite film of mine. Um, absolutely adores been looking forward to the, you know, the rumors of this. I think our own um, Aaron West here uh, captured this on Criterion shelves many years back, and uh, I've been looking forward to it ever since. If I recall correctly, he was the one responsible for leaking that particular bit of info. Um, it is uh, Howard Hawks is bringing up Baby. Um, not only probably the funniest film ever made for my money, I've seen this you know, probably a dozen times easily and cannot stop laughing every time I watch it. There seems to be more and more every time out. And Criterion did a really bang-up job with the restoration of it. It looks absolutely spectacular and not, like, too overly clean. It's really, like, it looks like how I how it feels watching in theaters, which I've been fortunate enough to do a number of times. Um, and it's filled out with a, a decent stock of supplements. Um, I, I think some of the new additions are maybe a little thin. You know, I, I appreciated that effort to look into Cary Grant's early career. I feel like it was maybe not most comprehensive um the program about the cinematographer behind the film russell meddy who had a very storied career you know maybe this isn't his most uh ostentatious and gorgeous looking film um so that felt a little like well okay cool i really dug the supplement on the special effects though because there's a lot of special effects that you wouldn't necessarily notice right away watching the film and i love the selected scene commentary um on the costumes and costume designer Howard Greer, and a lot of the archival stuff. You know, I listened to the audio kind of conversation with Cary Grant and an audience, which was a whole lot of fun. You know, he is a really uh, rakish kind of uh, very engaging public speaker. Um, it was a lot of fun to go through. And yeah, I mean, bottom line though, this is just one of my favorite films, and I've been waiting for a great edition of it for a long time. You know, I had the old WB edition um, two disc set on my shelf for a while, but obviously that was a vast need of an upgrade and. Criterion was good enough to carry over um, at least the bulk of the supplements from that, if not all of them. And yeah. Uh, oh, and, and I, as I said at the top, uh, nice thick booklet. Not only get a great essay by Sheila O'Malley, who I always love um, reading from, but also uh, the original short story upon which the film was based, which is always a, a real treat. Um, yeah. Like I said, classic favorite film, Bang Up Edition. Apologies. Can I can I interject just so I don't get on Peter Becker's naughty list? It wasn't me. It wasn't, it wasn't me. you. Who was it? I don't. I, it became a thing. I because I, I, it was on our polls in the group every month for about three four years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Although I did know it was coming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> for the record, here since uh, this is part of the official archive, well, let's let's juggle our order just slightly to let Jill kind of weigh in on the same film. Jill, what was yeah. your number three? So, you know, Scott really kind of said most everything that needed to be said about this. This is just a top film for me, top comedy for me. Um, I love I love my Cary Grant so much. And I, you know, I didn't know for sure that it was coming, but I did get tipped off. I'm, I'm friends with Sheila O'Malley and, you know, sometimes she'll, 
post a picture on her Instagram or something of kind of what she's reading. And I saw this stack of books and um, it was, you know, a couple Cary Grant books and a couple Catherine Hepburn books and a couple Howard Hawks books. And I was like, <laughs> connect mm, the dots. Yes. I think she is writing an essay on bringing up baby. So I kind of had a feeling that that was coming. Um, but this, you know, I also had, uh, I still have, actually, I, I had the two disc Warner set, which was lovely uh, when it came out. Um, and, but it, it has desperately needed uh, an upgrade. And, you know, I, so I do love that Sheila wrote the essay for this. And um, the Craig Barron, he's so great. He, and he's a really nice guy, by the way. Um, so having him on here. And then the the essay by Scott Iman, um, you know, is good. And, the, and his book on Cary Grant is good. I, I had a couple little points in his book that I'm not too pleased about. But, uh, you know, he's a great writer and, and film historian. So it was nice to see him on here. Um, the film looks spectacular. Um, I'm glad that we have, a, you know, a better copy than the one that was out of print. And then I think it got re- re-released a couple times on like really stripped down uh, DVD uh, releases. But um, this is one that I've shared with my daughter um, on numerous occasions. And so I'm just really, really thrilled that it has finally joined the collection. And it's just cute as hell. The whole like packaging, the little, the baby uh, font um, and the little tail. And um, it's, it's just a really cute, cute disc as well. When, and my 11 year old really loves that. So that was my third. Excellent. Another definitive edition of a bona fide Hollywood classic indeed. All right, Josh, your number three also was kind of on my short list, but didn't quite make the cut. But tell us about your, your third pick of the year. Yeah, you know, this is a film, it was one of the early releases of the year, and I was honestly, uh, I I was kind of procrastinating on watching it. It was one that I saw during award season a few years ago, it was one that I was happy that was getting a Criterion release, but it was one that I wasn't necessarily looking forward to digging into a whole lot, because I thought it was a fine film, but not a, not a great film, and uh this is one of the things that I love Criterion for is uh, because I'm a completionist, because I have all the discs, I, I go through and I, I rewatch the films as they come out and I dig into the supplements and, and all of that. And uh, it, it got me to reevaluate a film that I thought was okay. And it hit me at a time that uh, I really, it, it really moved me and really hit me uh pretty deeply at a time that I really needed a film like this. And that was uh, Bing Liu's Minding the Gap. Um, This is a documentary about uh, skateboarders and it examines uh, masculinity in, uh, in the ways that cycles of abuse are handed down from generation to generation. Uh, It's really moving, really powerful. Uh, and this is one of those streaming uh, deals. This is with Hulu, and uh, this is a film that 
if it wasn't for this Criterion release, we wouldn't be getting some of the really incredible uh, supplements here. We have two brand new audio commentaries. We have follow-up conversations between Lou and one of the subjects. Uh, we have some really incredible uh, just content. We have a short film uh, by Lou. We have some other outtakes. This is just a, a comprehensive package. And uh, again, to reconsider a film that I thought was, was okay when I first saw it, and uh, to to be able to rewatch it out of the, the rush of watching a lot of uh, other films around the same time and to see it on its own um, and be really genuinely moved by it this time. Uh, again, this is, this is what I go to Criterion for and uh, this has stayed with me over the course of the year and uh, really, really happy to see it uh, get uh, a Criterion release. So yeah, this is great. All right, Aaron. Yeah, let's go ahead and Aaron and get you in the mix here. What's your number three? Uh, sure. Uh, so actually, I'm glad that Josh uh, shared that because, yeah, speaking of the inclusion and diversity, the way we started out, like Mining the Gap is a great film to um, really understand in, how it feels inside the skin of somebody different than yourself. And I think uh, Bing Lu, I believe it, his name was, um, really conveyed that very well. Excellent documentary. So I'm glad he chose that, Josh. Um, my number three was High Sierra. And this was a surprise for me because I hadn't seen it. Um, and it, it just so happens, I'm, I, I don't really think about episodes that we've recorded in terms of my choices, but it just ha so happens that two of my favorite episodes um, had contributors on this disc, which was uh, Farron Smith-Neme, uh, who did an interview, and also uh, uh, Imogen Sarah Smith, who wrote the essay. Um, so, And this, for me, was a discovery. And, and frankly, I think this set is, I mean, it's a single disc, but it or double, double disc, but it's almost a set because it's two films and has so much content, really three films, if you count the Raul Walsh documentary, uh, which is very comprehensive. And uh, boy, it's fire. <laughs> That's all I'll say. I highly recommend The True Adventures of Raul Walsh, although I will um, maybe put an asterisk, asterisk may, not, may not be entirely true. Um, but 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 this was a, a new film for me, uh, a new classic film, uh, an early bogey that uh, that showed a different side of him that I really haven't seen throughout his career. Uh, we have Ida Lupino in a great role, and and I really like uh, I, I like films that use a sense of place and use uh, uh, locations well. And you see that sometimes in classic Hollywood, but I haven't seen a whole lot of films that use it as well as High Sierra, and then at, which was. I guess technically pre-noir, if you go by the whole um, Maltese Falcon was the first noir, you know, that's an argument to settle at another time. But it, it kind of feels like, a, you know, the origins of noir, uh, or at least a, a gangster movie. And then uh, Cal sorry, Colorado Territory, which was made by Raul Walsh, uh, I believe it was nine years later, set it as a, uh, as a Western uh, the same story with some some different uh, different uh, plot developments, different characters, uh, the same characters, but uh, different, I guess, perspectives of that character uh, that more fit with the uh, the, the trappings of, of, of Western. And uh, both films are, are really excellent, actually. And both films also you are excellent at using space and location. And um, so, yeah, I was really taken with this. Uh, and, yeah, that's really all I have. All right, Trevor, let's go ahead and get into your... Number three selection, your favorite Criterion release All of right. the year. Well, and I appreciate it. I know we've got to be kind of fast because mm -hmm. we've got a lot of people, but I'll just throw it out there. My my number three 
Johnny Toe's Throwdown. I'd never seen anything by Johnny Toe until I popped this in, and I didn't. I didn't even know if I read the back of the the box. I just got it for review, and I thought, okay, let's pop it in. David, I loved this film. Mm. The exuberance of it again. I thought it, I didn't know what. Again, speaking of Selena and Julie go boating, I didn't know what was going on for a pretty good part of this movie, but I loved every single second of it, mm. and I was blown away at how much joy I got from that, but also by the end, how touched I felt. I just, I loved being with these people as they somehow made me happy as they went through their struggles. I, I loved this movie as probably, probably my biggest surprise in my top three. Uh, I had to find a place on my top three because it, it just gave me such a delight. That's great. It really enhances my curiosity to check it out. I saw it had something to do with Kurosawa and judo. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah, yeah, you'll yeah. you'll notice some Shiro Sagata <laughs> right at the beginning of it, but it does so much. It does so much. Oh yeah, let's stop and you go watch it right now, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got some other business to take. Care oh, okay, of, okay, so. okay. <laughs> All right, so let me get to my number three then, which is a film, a collection of films that is in pretty fresh mm-hmm. recent memory. You and I talked about three films by Luis Bunuel. Yes, and uh, you know, again, just kind of gave myself a re-listen to that conversation, which greatly enjoyed. But I, I do feel like, yeah, this is this is a, a series of films that. Um, has been rightfully restored to the Criterion Collection, and I really appreciate the fact that they've been boxed into one sort of comprehensive mm-hmm. unit, which is, I think, you know, it, typically I don't even consider reissues or upgrades for this end-of-the-year list, but this one here did strike me as both on a personal level, and again, I've said a lot more about these films in that episode of Inside the Box, so I'll just recommend people who want to learn more about my reaction to the films, go check that out. But I, I just feel like this was a great recognition of Bunuel, perhaps an, a good introduction of, of his work to younger uh, viewers and collectors, and I just loved, the, the, again, the way the package came together, and just you know, rather than the sort of scattered, randomly ordered DVDs that have been out of print for several years, and I don't think mm-hmm. are still available as solo titles. This is the way to get them now. But uh, you know, the, the artwork, the packaging, uh, and of course, the, the the Blu-ray upgrade, getting those images in, in high definition, definitely made this a solid contender for my number three favorite of the year. Yeah, we need to ask Jonathan James, who rightfully called us out for kind of poo-pooing <laughs> that, if we have sufficiently made up for that. Because yeah, it it was, it it was right there for me too in contention. I love that box set. All right, well, let's take it around to the top of round number two here, Arik. Uh, what's your second choice for the year? Yeah, so my second choice is original cast album Company, the documentary by D. A. Pennebaker of the recording sessions for the original cast album from the Broadway musical Company. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say I watched this and fell completely head over heels in love with it like days before Stephen Sondheim, the music and lyric author of this um, album, passed away. Uh, and so it, it did kind of give a, a heightened sort of, you know, it's one of those things where coincidence happens and you're like drawn to it in a way. Um, but 
it it really had nothing to do with that. I didn't watch it because of that, obviously, and and it it didn't really make any difference other than to say, you know, R.I.P. Stephen Sondheim, who <laughs> had a, just an absolutely incredible, over the top, legendary career. But this film, I I really didn't expect to be so captivated by it. You know, I, I like Pennebaker's work and I like documentaries, but I, to be honest, I put it on that night because. Uh, I started. I started watching Inside Lewin Davis, which somehow I have still not managed to see. I've started that movie three or four times, and something always <laughs> yeah. happens that means I don't have enough time to finish it. And that happened again. I started it, and life intervened, and I just didn't have enough time that night before I went to bed. So I was like, but I really wanted to watch a movie. You know, I was kind of in that mindset. So I thought, okay, what's well, a short movie in the collection? <laughs> so, so honestly, I was going purely on runtime. And I, I just grabbed this off the shelf and put it in, and I was knocked over. And in retrospect, it's not that surprising. Uh, those of you who know that I write about all of these films, uh, still doing that. I'm, I'm one of the last remaining people still still writing about these films uh, uh, over on Cinema Gadfly will have read already that you know I grew up uh, as a theater kid. You know, I was very fortunate to be a child in, um, to spend part of my childhood in Palo Alto, California, which was home to Palo Alto Children's Theater, which is one of the oldest and most successful children's theaters in the country. And I got involved at a fairly young age, 10 or 11. And over the next four or five years, I was in maybe 30 plays. I did uh, four summers of a theater conservatory program. I worked for a theater company. I just got very, very involved in theater. And, um, that is sort of one pole of why this film spoke to me so much. The other one is that my mother grew up in in New York City or just outside in Westchester um, in the sort of 50s and 60s. And uh, her family did not have a lot of money, but one of the things they did do every year for her birthday was that she would get to go to a, a Broadway show and it was usually a musical. And as part of the gift, she would also get the original cast album on vinyl, of course, as part of her birthday present. And she treasured that. And growing up, we had a record player in my parents' house, really nice speakers, actually. And this treasure trove of cast albums that my mom had collected, both as a child and then as an adult. And I just devoured them. And I absolutely love musicals. And I love theater. So, uh, and I love documentaries. So <laughs> it really should have been pretty obvious to me that a documentary looking behind the scenes at the recording of a cast album for a Broadway musical would have been, you know, like the definition of my alley. So I, I watched it. I've watched it like three or four times. And I that, that's not something I typically do in rapid succession. I just am completely obsessed. I I I've actually never seen Company, the, the actual musical, but I now know all the songs. And the, the, the documentary itself is just... We're just so fortunate to have it. It it was, I guess, supposed to be the pilot for a show that would do this, which is hard to really imagine there have been having been a TV show that followed the recording of cast albums, but wow, that would have been incredible. But that you know, Pennebaker showed up and just got, in his typical fashion, a mixture of talent and lucky with the just an incredible marathon day of recording leading to this Elaine Stritch uh, attempt to do her 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 iconic Ladies Who Lunch song. You just got to go watch it. The the building of tension. I mean, in 53 minutes, it does more building of tension than a lot of narrative films, and it has no particular story. It's it's just it is the 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 special features are great. There's there's quite a a lot of of other stuff, but it's really the uh, the film itself is just magic. It's just 
one of those moments in time. Lightning struck. It's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Well, Aaron, this is also on your list as well. Do you want to do a little duet with Arik there? <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, I'm, I'm really glad to have heard that because I really came at this from the opposite perspective. Uh, so I've really not been a theater person, and but I love documentary and I, and I love cinema verite. And, and I especially love cinema verite when it captures like the process of something. So as Arik mentioned, um, this was supposed to be a series and the, the, the objective was to capture a number of these recordings and, and probably Stritch's breakdown is why that didn't happen. So in, in that case, in that sense, this is really a historical document because now that we can see how the sausage was made at least. Um, and I imagine has been for, for decades uh, for, for other, other plays. But um, I, I really was not a Sondheim guy. I, I, I knew, you know, West Side Story and some of his other work, but I had never seen Company and uh, I had seen the documentary now, which I highly recommend you watch. It's hilarious. But when I watched it the first time, having not have having the context of company, I didn't really get the jokes. Um, but I was transfixed by company, uh, by the just yeah, lightning in a bottle, magic, as you said, Arik. I mean, it really just won me over. Uh, and, and yeah, that, and there's, there's palpable tension with Stritch um, and also just the the rest of the cast. And frankly, you know, I, I, I kind of discovered Sondheim through this and seeing him, um, you know, not in the context of his passing, but just seeing him in action, it really feels like you're watching the, the genius at work. Um, so I also watched it four times, Arik, and I then watched uh, the actual uh, Broadway recording. I, I watched the Raul Esparza uh, doc, um, um, recording, the rendition, and I'll, I'll probably watch more. And I've watched YouTube clips. I even went back and watched Marriage Story because uh, <laughs> Adam Driver does does being alive um so yeah the his passing it's sad it kind of punctuates the that i i discovered this this genius uh the the last year of his life but um but it's just a phenomenal addition uh, and yeah i i it actually changed me as a person in my tastes and uh and yeah and, and again back to the process it also um i i remembered it when i watched uh, peter jackson's get back and i, I just kind of compared those mm. two films uh, re regarding the making of a cast album and the making of a real album. Um, and two different pieces of art, but they complement each other well. So glad we're on the same page there, Arik. All right, picking up in round two. Jordan, what's your uh, number two selections for 2021? So I'm going to cheat a little bit on this uh, number two, but David, you were helpful behind the scenes to point out that you have pulled this exact move. So yeah. I'm going to... <laughs> follow your great example and choose the two films that were released back to back by Ramin Barani this year. And it's his first and second films. We have Man Push Cart, uh, which he did in 2005. And then his follow-up feature Chop Shop, which he did in 2007. These kind of blew my mind. Now I'd seen Man Push Cart once before, um, but revisiting it now and then in the company of Chop Shop, I just got really excited about this filmmaker and I would consider Chop Shop probably my number one discovery of the year. I think that's a pretty much perfect film from, from start to finish. And what the films have in common is I think worth discussing too. Um, there's some stylistic commonalities that are really obvious, but they're both about the portrait of persistence um, and the pursuit of the American dream. And 
this is persistence in the heroic sense, but also persistence as kind of a myopic and contradictory, irrational influence um, on uh, in inside of someone's life, like almost like the the strange foster child of fate. Um, and that is what is them thematically appealing about the two films. But it's the way in which director Ramin Barani and his cinematographer on both these features, Michael Simmons, uh, it's the way these two uh, tell their stories that really is what makes the films so exciting. And it's nice that these are the first two of his catalog because it does open the door for the possibility that many more could join the collection at a certain point. Um, maybe even his his third film, um, Goodbye Solo, but also via the Netflix deal, he just released White Tiger this last year, um, uh, streaming exclusively through Netflix. But um, to talk about the, the type of storytelling, so there's a lot of handheld camera work, um, there's a lot of naturalistic lighting. There's a, so there's this direct cinema quality to the stories. In fact, in in a number of these amazing uh, supplementary uh, uh, videos and and interviews that, that are on the discs, you learn that while shooting Chop Shop in particular, like they even lied about the fact they were shooting a documentary for what they thought were kind of like social reasons. It'd be easier to get cooperation from the people that they were you know, trying to include in the project. Um, but they do very much have that sensibility to them. Um, and there's there's other qualities about the filmmaking that kind of reinforce that sensibility using non-professional actors, filming scenes in one take, editing with a fairly light hand, avoiding non-diegetic sound. Um, and they found the films in the editing process to some degree. It's my understanding there was... There was a script. The script was never shown to the actors in, in either film. The process of rehearsal evolved the story so that the director could utilize the improvisations that the that these non-professional actors would um, you know, have to lean on because they couldn't ever read the scene. The director would describe the, the scene and then they would interpret what they thought they understood their characters motivations were and the points the character had to get across and then the script would be rewritten but again even even at the point when they had rehearsed it a million times and they were shooting the final version that script was never shared with the with the actors and i just think the performances that we get out of non-professional actors sometimes are seen with a certain level of scrutiny um but I think that uh, the, he's he's created actors from this process that that embrace a kind of naturalism that you don't often see, uh, and in fact, it's it's much more so in the second film. In fact, many qualities that are really great about the first film really get polished for the second film. Barani is uh, an American filmmaker, but he's one of Iranian descent, and he had a lot of success with Man Push Cart and he was embraced by, you know, many international filmmakers, among them Karistami, who told him like, you know, the first film is very good, but it needs to have more tonal variety. Uh, your second film needs to have more tonal variety. And he he did that and he polished just a lot of different ideas that are on display in Man Push Cart, but just reach their like full realization in Chop Shop. 
there are fantastic commentary tracks speaking of like the the fuller packaging of these two films that criterion did they're not criterion produced commentary tracks but one of the things i really like about them is that it is both the cinematographer michael simmons the director barani and then the uh i, I trip over non-professional actors uh, the actors are often involved in those commentary tracks as well. And so in particular in Chop Shop, I'd say like Alejandro Polanco and Isamar Gonzalez just give breathtaking performances. Um, I've already said Chop Shop is basically a perfect film, but both films also have perfect endings. Um, so I can't recommend these enough. I think this is a just a really exciting filmmaker and um, not that these films were made recently, but my love for him is very recent. And so these are my number two. Excellent. Yeah, those were pretty pretty impressive films for me as well from early in the year. All right, uh, Scott, you've got a pretty obscure little out-of-left-field nugget for us for your favorite for number two. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, this rarity that you've uh, chosen? Well, I just think it's important you know, to shine a light on lesser-known uh, <laughs> corners of cinematic history. And it's really, I, I see my mission as in tandem with Criterion's mission, you know, to uh, educate the masses, really. Um, so in, in that vein, I, I am indeed picking Citizen Kane, uh, Orson Welles' debut feature that has uh, since been declared multiple times over multiple decades, over multiple lifetimes, uh, the greatest film ever made. Um, you know, that status has been somewhat challenged over the years. And one of the things that's really exciting about this edition coming when it has is that uh, Criterion embraces that. In, you know, in uh, Bill Gibberry's essay and in the commentary track by Jonathan Rosenbaum, and oh god uh james namor um they're really taking that status um head on and not only um acknowledging it but questioning it um figuring out the ways in which that status was formed uh the ways in which that may or may not still apply in our current society um and uh just challenging the film from all ends i was pleased to hear uh jill acknowledge that the film is still pissing people off and i think that's really well reflected in the supplements especially that commentary track which is uh frequently quite competitive um sometimes just the two of them trying to vie for some time you know you only have two hours to discuss one of the most discussed films ever made how do you really encapsulate it all but some of it is genuinely competing viewpoints of different ways of seeing the film uh which for a film that's been as dissected as citizen kane is also very exciting you know there's no one way to read this film there are innumerable readings and you see that reflected all up and down uh the edition really in some ways if you really want to get you know hoity-toity about it even the packaging is kind of acknowledging that you know there's these different panels um that kind of add up to a, a whole but does it really it kind of gives you an image and it's really part and parcel what the film is trying to say of like you can know certain things about a man's life but you can't really completely know the man um and beyond it just being a great film like i said i do think this is a fine addition i am sympathetic to some of the criticisms the transfer has uh received without uh fully being able to embrace them because i put it on and i just thought it looked pretty damn good myself um so yeah uh, and it's just also just a film that continues to entertain and challenge you know i, I threw it on expecting only to watch the kind of get a sense of the transfer and kind of put it on the background but sure enough an hour and a half went by and i watched practically the entire thing and went ahead and finished it because it's just that engaging and exciting a film still to this day there's really nothing quite like it you know orson wells i think he made better films after this i tend to be in that camp myself 
um, but he never quite had the same number of resources, the same autonomy to do as he pleased with those resources. And so he never quite made a film with the same texture. And there's really no one else capable of making a film with the same texture as an Orson Welles film. You know, he has a very singular identity in the way he goes about making a film and the way that that takes its final shape. And there's nothing, nothing really like Citizen Kane. I couldn't be more thrilled that Criterion um, got it back in the collection and made it one of their first 4K editions. I think it's a really worthy uh, entry in that regard. And I'm glad to see it still uh, retains a certain level of prominence. You know, it can be easy to write off these uh, great works of cinema and cast them off to an earlier time. You know, I think we're in the process, you know, rightfully in many regards of doing that with something like Gone with the Wind. Um, but uh, Kane is one of those that's really endured over the years and seems kind of, you know, you can knock it off its pedestal in the sight and sound list, but you can't really completely challenge the film. You know, the, the film will always remain great and the Criterion's edition helps uh, cement that a uh, very excellent take on an all-time classic yeah thank you scott uh, definitely citizen kane had to be on this list somewhere so i appreciate you, you know, raising the raising the flag once again all right jill let's give it a shot what's your number two for this year yeah so my number two is uh edmund golding's uh nightmare alley and let me tell you i was so excited when this was announced because the only um edition that had been released was a long out of print terrible transfer on dvd and um this movie is just completely bonkers uh super dark and um the fact that it came out this year when we have the new um adaptation uh, that uh, is, I guess, not officially out. Uh, I believe it comes out, is it today or tomorrow? Really soon, um, definitely. By the time really listeners soon, hear it, it'll be, out, it'll be out there, yeah. It, yeah, so, it, it, so it's going to be out, and the, the, it has been, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro and co-written with uh, uh, Kim Morgan, who also provides the essay uh, for this release. Um, I have to say that the first time I saw this film, um, I had seen bits and pieces of it, but I'd never seen it all the way through until I went to uh, uh, one of the TCM film festivals years ago. And um, it was screening on a Sunday morning. And the czar of noir, uh, Eddie Muller, was there. And he asked how many of us had not seen the film. And a number of us raised our hands and uh because this film had not been readily available and uh he said that there was no better way to spend a sunday morning than to watch this film uh it was you know he said some people go to church other people sit and watch nightmare alley in a theater um and this you know tyrone power was you know, I think I don't think he gets the um, credit for being a great actor that that he deserves. He was beautiful. Um, so I think a lot of times uh, his whatever, um, uh, you know, people look at him as more of kind of beefcake. And in this film, it really does show his incredible talent. Um, Joan Blondell. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, she had had kind of her peak 
uh, during the 1930s. She's fantastic in this. And then you have some great character actors like Mike Mazursky, who uh, I I love him, and uh, Colleen Gray. And so this this film, if if people have not seen it, it is um, very very dark. I know that the new version is supposed to be uh, even more so. Um, it's not completely faithful to the book, just because they couldn't make it that way because of the production code but it's still incredibly bleak it's a top film noir and this release is really stunning the film looks fantastic the um i had mentioned earlier this was you know one of my uh picks for best cover best packaging um of the year when i received uh the disc i freaked out because I thought that the disc, um, that it, the little holder thing was broken and my <laughs> disc was like flopping around yeah. in the case. And when I opened it up, I was pleasantly surprised to find tarot cards. <laughs> and so yeah. there's just a, a little, you know, I, I'm not big on these, you know, uh, box sets. Like I actually have um, a Casablanca uh, anniversary set that like was sent to me. And like, what am I going to do with coasters? It's like coasters <laughs> and a poster and this. Right. And then my daughter, when she was four, she wanted the big singing in the rain set. That was her favorite movie. And it came with a umbrella and a bunch of like, what am I going to do with this? I have no room for it. <laughs> but I do appreciate little extras that don't necessarily take up a lot of shelf space. So um, <laughs> having the tarot cards is, is a nice touch or, you know, like polyester with the, with the uh, odorama card, you know, I do like when they kind of slip in a little extra um, that kind of fits with the vibe of the film. Um, and I love the whole art, the art work on it and just the whole feel of, um, yeah, it's it's very midway circusy. Yeah. So I, I love that. Um so yeah, that's it. I'm I'm just really thrilled that this thing has a has a, a really stunning release. And then of course, uh that interview with Imogen Sarah Smith. Um it, she's always great. So yeah. No, that's a beautiful pick and definitely they, they did throw that little extra piece of flair in there. I, I really appreciate the, the, the loving care that they show to these movies. So nice pick. All right, Josh, give us your number two. Yeah, my number two, you know, I, I mentioned before with uh, my number three that it was a film that I had seen but uh, wasn't necessarily as excited about. Uh, my number two pick is a film that I think I had dismissed completely when it originally came out. Uh, I was just getting into uh, art house films. Uh, I was just out of college. I was just getting into foreign films. And, you know, this film has two strikes against it for me. It's a sports film and it's a romantic drama. And those are two things that just were not... Um, uh, things that I was really looking for when it came out originally. And uh, 
again, what I love about Criterion is that it asks me to reevaluate some of my preconceived notions about films. And uh, so this is Love and Basketball. And I was so pleasantly surprised when I uh, watched it. And uh, this to me is part of what I love about Criterion. Uh, this is a really fantastic romantic drama. The characters are all really well drawn. Uh, so many films from that time period that I, I know that I've overlooked because uh, I was busy kind of discovering classic Hollywood for the first time, and I was busy discovering foreign films for the time for the first time. Uh, you know, so many of the these films that are are really well done. Uh, you know, I I think. I lumped a lot of films in under the same umbrella and uh, to to see a film that has really, really great performances that is the, the sports sequences are really well shot. Uh, there's a, a kinetic action about them. Um, and to have characters that even the, the antagonists are, are all really well drawn and given complete arcs and are, are, drawn with such empathy and humanity. Um, it was just a really refreshing watch and something that I wasn't expecting. And, you know, I know a lot of people when they see some of these, uh, more recent studio titles being added to the collection, there's a, a, does, a, a tendency to dismiss them and a tendency to, uh, want to brush those aside. And, uh, this is a, a film that I am really, really grateful is now in the collection. Uh, it's got great supplements. Uh, we've got two commentary tracks from an earlier release. We've got some great new, uh, documentaries, new, uh, conversations, some deleted scenes. We've got short films from, uh, Gina Prince Bythewood. I mean, this is a really, comprehensive uh package and uh this is to me again what criterion does uh at its best and uh, uh asking us to reevaluate filmmakers to reevaluate films and uh this is just a, a really a refreshing work uh so i'm uh, i'm really excited to have gotten the opportunity to see this Cool. Well, I appreciate your perspective, and I think you probably got me to set aside some of my uh, pre-existing assumptions as well, because I haven't yet taken the chance to watch it, but uh, you've definitely created some intrigue, so thanks for that, Josh. All right, Trevor, tell us your number two favorite of 2021. All right. It is Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder. Uh, this is his, his 2003 film. Um, I think it's his second film. L last Christmas time... There was a, a lot of his films on the channel, and I spent Christmas watching his work and, and catching up with all of Bong Joon-ho's work because I loved Parasite so much. So that was the first time that I had seen this movie, and I was really excited when they when they announced it to be released because I, I have loved his movies. And this one with Parasite and Mother, though that's my taste when it comes to Bong Joon-ho, those films mm -hmm. versus you know, Okja and, and Snowpiercer, which I still find you know enjoyable. But these kind of hard but but still like almost uh, choreographed pieces of art 
and the the themes that they that they examine um i i do hope that they get to mother someday then i'll be happy forever you know i'll never <laughs> never want anything else again um <laughs> but memories of murder i know there were some issues that people have brought up and maybe legitimately so about the color grading on it that's a little bit faint you know not doesn't mm. pop the reds and such but i didn't really notice that when i watch it on, in motion and i'm not comparing it to something else i still thought it was it was beautiful to watch in this release and again, just a delight to revisit and to go through the supplements um, after I'd kind of sped through Bong Joon-ho's work. He's, he, he, he really has ramped up to be one of my favorite filmmakers, and I'm glad that they got this, uh, this piece. I think it was really hard to find. It, I didn't catch it on the channel. Um, you know, I had to go and go digging to, to unearth where I could watch Memories of Murder, but now here it is. You can watch it whenever you want. <laughs> Excellent choice. I know a very well-received release when it came out earlier this year. All right, my number two is one that uh, you mentioned a while back in this episode when it came to favorite covers. I'm going to go with Jacques Rivette's Mm -hmm. Celine and Julie Go Boating as my number two pick for the year. Um, (laughs) And basically, this one, I had watched it before when it first came out on the channel, it's one of those films that had been very hard to, as, as you just said, with Memories of Murder, hard to track down, mm-hmm. uh, maybe had a little bit of a legend surrounding it. And uh, finally, it was available. I watched it on the streamer. It was entertaining and kind of enigmatic and mysterious. And, and I, okay, I can sort of see what the hype is all about. But once I got the, the Blu-ray and really dug into it, I really fell in love with this film. I think a lot of it, going back to my um, my Godard kind of series that I did with with John Lobinger as well as uh, the the um, uh, Tuva Bien episode that was kind of got me back into the Criterion flow of things. Um, Juliette Berto was a was an actress who started kind of working with Godard at the time. I think she was in La Chinoise in a small role, and then in Le Gay Savoir or The Joy of Learning. She was, you know, kind of one of the keys opposite of Jean-Pierre Léod. And I really just became intrigued with her as a performer. And and Juliette Berto had a lot to do with uh, Celine and Julie Go Boating. I mean, Rivette was the director, and he's got a great reputation. But Juliette Berto just really intrigued me based on her contributions to Godard's work and her uh, political activism and just kind of just the way she presented herself. Um, And so I returned to Celine and Julie Go Boating, really having an appreciation for Berto and a really intrigued to see just sort of see what it was that she brought to this. And I just love, I just, I love so much about this film. It's the the 70s-ness, the shagginess of it, the improvisational nature, this kind of, you know, it, it, uh, in its own way, like Bunuel, a bit of a mind-bending film, um, much more spontaneous and, and less uh, staged and crafted in many ways than Bunuel's films, but still has that kind of kind of consciousness shifting quality to it mm-hmm. as well as just the, you know again the themes um and and, and bringing a, a pretty strong woman's perspective to this this uh, you know largely improvised romp through uh, summer in the uh, uh, through paris in the summer of 1976 i believe it was so yeah a, a film i definitely will have a lot more to say about when uh, time allows <laughs> um I, I i that's it's just a great hangout movie one that i've put on a few times just to sort of have on background and just look up every so often and just revisit and uh, glimpse at different scenes and just feel that amusement all over again so yeah uh, a real you could have it on repeat and it would just on the loop and it would 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, little, little Alice in Wonderland down the bunny trail there. So yeah, I, I love it. And I'm really glad that we, even though it's a 16 millimeter kind of a little bit on the grainy side, but uh, I, I love that funkiness mm-hmm. about it as well. Well, a few years ago in 2016, the Criterion released Jacques Rivette's Paris Belongs to Us. Mm-hmm. And when Scott and I brought it up on our year-end episode, I recommended the work of Roberto Bolaño mm-hmm. because of its weird kind of sense of paranoia. Mm-hmm. Celine and Julie Goboding, and now i got to bring up another uh, author in Spanish, Cesar Ayra. Okay. It's that improvisational, who knows what's going to come next, fun, falling forward, uh, mad dash. And it those books are, you know, Ayra's books are delightful to me in the same way that that this one is. And I'm like, man, you never known anyone who could make a Bolaño a film feel like a Bolaño story. Mm-hmm. I've also never thought I'd ever see one that made me think of an Ayra story. But here we go. Rivette. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this will definitely be a, a year of deeper into Rivette for me because uh, Juliette Berto is a pretty big part of Out One as well. So I've mm. got to finally hunker down and get into that, <laughs> that one. So that's my number two. All right. Here we come to round number one, the, the top picks of the year. So, Arik, let's go ahead and hear from you. What was your number one criterion release of 2021? Yeah. So. Speaking of, you know, earlier I was talking about having been blown over by something. This, this, uh, I, I don't even know if, if knocked over, blown over. I don't even know what the right level of, you know, um, adjectives would even be to describe my reaction to this set. So this is a, a box set, and it's the signifying works of Marlon Riggs. And I think that this is legitimately one of the most important releases that Criterion has maybe ever put out. Uh, it it is it is titanic it is it is unbelievable and f- one of the reasons for that maybe a lesser less obvious one is that we don't actually get complete film box sets very often that's uh, apparently you know for for rights reasons that's very hard to achieve there are a handful in the collection there's the complete Jacques Tati there's the complete Agnes Varda mostly we get it when the filmmaker owned their own rights so starting there we, this is every film that Riggs made now partially that's for uh horrible reasons because a his his life was cut tragically short by uh AIDS and secondly he mostly struggled to get funding and and you know he wasn't able to make as many films as he should have but it is his entire output and that is something very very special to begin with but secondly it's it's the films themselves if we're talking about representation one of the things that we have historically done a very poor job of when thinking of representation is this idea of um, uh, intersectionality. And that is the idea that someone's identity comprises many different aspects that create a unique identity that is distinct from the separate identities that make up that person's background. So in this case, Marlon Riggs was black, Marlon Riggs was gay, Marlon Riggs was a black gay person. And the black gay person part of his identity he was also of course a hundred other things but that particular part of his back of his identity is distinct from either his being black or his being gay and so what we have here is a set of works on that very specific topic and generally speaking on the representation of african-americans and black people uh, in media broadly and so what we have here is a collection of um documentaries and and sort of um performance films that he made uh largely with you know public funding and for pbs uh, a lot of them um on on the topics of um 
black representation in media, black queer representation, demystifying black queer relationships and all this kind of stuff. And what we see here, these films are, it's both impressive that they are as powerful and affecting in 2021 as they were in the 80s and 90s. And it's also deeply, deeply depressing, right? That we can still be, see something uh, and and have it be as subversive and as and as challenging as some of these films are even 20, 30 years later from when they were made. But I think, you know, if if you if you imagine that most f- people buying and watching the Criterion Collection have have some of them may may if they're old enough or, or were paying attention in the in the 80s and 90s may have seen some of these films on PBS, although they were often censored or not shown very much. But if you imagine that this is probably the first time that most folks are seeing these films, I just think that there is so many people who will have a completely different perspective on some things um, after they see these movies, whether that's the way in which America has presented racism mixed into sort of all parts of everyday life, if that's um, something about the way that black gay sexuality is still much less acceptable than other forms of even gay sexuality in America, if that's um, looking back on the HIV era and how that, you know, wiped out an entire generation of, of, of people or any of the other things that these films touch. They're also just, by the way, ridiculously well done, well-made, beautiful films that will, will, you know, are impressive purely as works of art. But on top of that, for what they symbolize and what they mean, this is just, this is a moment that I think we will look back on and say, okay, that was actually a, a, a very, very big deal. Um, and, and as well, there has just never been a director quite like Marlon Riggs. And I think, it, you know, if you watch these films, I, you know, you will be moved and you will be changed. And I think that's, that's, that's what we go to. That's at least one of the main reasons I go to cinema is to have that kind of experience. So I, I've just been completely in love. I'm actually not even all the way through the set. Um, I've seen the first, I think five and I'm sort of going slowly because I don't actually want to be done because they're so special and wonderful. So um, yeah, this is by far my favorite release of the year and my favorite release in a long time. And I, um, I will watch these movies many, many more times. And I, I just think everyone should check it out. It's, it's wonderful. That's quite a testimony there. Uh, Aaron, again, you and Eric are in uh, two-part harmony here. So uh, <laughs> pick it up from yeah. there. This is also your nice number one pick for the year. This is my number one pick. And I, I think most people that have listened to the show this year have not been surprised. Well, of course, uh, I was fortunate to uh, have Brad McDermott uh, uh, kind of speak from his experience um, on the show about it. And and I really was proud of that episode because we got a lot deeper than we normally do. And uh, really, um, yeah, what you said, uh, Arik, is the film changed you and um, the film changed me as well. Uh, as it happens, my father was actually working um, uh, on on the AIDS program during the time that Marlon Riggs lived. And, uh, and actually, people on the show know that because um, Matthew Modine played one of my dad's colleagues. And we talked about that, but um, but yeah, as you mentioned, Arik, uh, it, he does capture the uh, the experience, the life living live experience of being queer, of um, being black, and how there's you know, I, I would say almost the opposite of inter- intersectionality. There's a lot of stigma about uh, you know being in both of those communities, um, from especially from the black perspective that I I did not 
really quite understand until I saw that. And then uh, uh, the third thing, uh, again, he, hundreds of things, but uh, the third most notable thing is that he was uh, living with AIDS, and I think we all know that he passed from AIDS. That's why we uh, don't get um, more than uh, the, what, six films that he, he made. Um, and it's a tragedy that we lost such a really a, an important and vital filmmaker. I'm so thrilled that Criterion um, spotlighted him. It, this is just the, one of the most monumental, I think, boxes I've seen in the history of the collection. Um, but also Marlon Riggs, you know, I, it's tragic that he couldn't have made 20 more documentaries because he was super talented and his, you know, he was spot on about uh, black history, about TV, TV portrayals of uh, blacks in, in, on TV. Um, but a lot of his later films, however, um, I'm, I'm never going to say it's a good thing somebody passed, but his passing, you see that perspective and that's very, very unique. And, and from such a accomplished and, um, and brilliant filmmaker, it's, it really is moving. Um, so I, yeah, this this one again changed me the most. Um, I, I I'm not going to say I understand what it's like being black or being gay, especially being both, but um, you know I, I have a little bit of understanding of how to treat somebody um, that's in in those in that living that experience. So great choices, Arik. Yeah, very. Uh, th- thank you. You as well. <laughs> well, you know, very well said. And I, I've worked my way through most of the first disc, and they are very compelling films. I definitely look forward to completing that journey. So, thanks. Yeah, and Arik, actually, um, I, I've watched it. I've watched it twice. In fact, I, I wife explained this uh, set <laughs> after watching it the first time. I told my wife it's so good she has to watch it. So um, I'm, I'm glad she did. She uh, she loved it as well. Uh, and it's just as good going through the second time. And I'm sure I'll go back to the set uh, numerous times over the years. It's just that special. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right on. I, I agree. This is a tremendous set. But I just want to ask both of you, of the ones you've seen, do you have a favorite? Hmm. Black is Black Game. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a great question. I, I haven't made it all the way through, as I said. Um, so far, I think ethnic notions, but let me... Uh, this is not good radio. Let me uh, just quickly pull up my watch list to see if I... what I, I Actually, I might go with Tongues Untied. It's, it's really yeah. special as well. Yeah. They're, so, they're all so good. And ethnic notions, that would be... Yeah, in the mix too. I, th- I think I gave them all either nine or ten on Letterbox. They're just so amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Tongues Untied. Yeah, if you like that one, Ark, you'll you'll also like um, No Regret when you get to that one. Yeah, right on. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, Jordan and Scott, we've already heard from Arik and Aaron with their uh, kind of mutually agreed upon number ones. Um, how about we let you guys go at it? Uh, Jordan and Scott, you both have the same number one pick. So Jordan, why don't you go ahead and open it up? All right. Excellent. Thank you, David. So this is my six year doing the best of episode, and I would never miss an opportunity uh, nor have I in the past to include my favorite filmmaker on my top three. And so my number one for this year is Mirror by Tarkovsky. This is just now joining the collection. It seemed inevitable, um, but unlike when Stalker came out, with when it got upgraded to Blu-ray and the packaging was a little bit spare and, and perhaps disappointing, the release for Mirror is um, astoundingly full and uh, I just want to focus mostly on the film itself, but it is ridiculous how much additional material that you can sift through uh, 
other documentaries and interviews. Um, it's, it is a quite appealing package. Um, but for the film itself, it is his final film. Um, it's my favorite of his body of work and it perhaps is most inaccessible. I say perhaps because I guess, you know, mileage may vary depending on your sensibilities, but it is the most sort of um, disembodied uh, film language that he that he uses here versus his other works. And it is beautifully poetic um, and sort of beautifully disorienting. And it's and it's filled with not only, you know, poetic imagery that um, that gives you um, much to unpack, but also voiceover narration and literal poems that are read um, that often do not align visually very cleanly. And so it's really worth watching multiple times. But you get these, you know, intense declarations such as, I'd give my life of my own free will had life's swift needle not drawn me through this world like a thread. Uh, and I picked that out because I think that describes the experience of, of watching this film. And it's a sentiment that is is given sort of visual form. Um, specifically, what comes to mind is something like the way the wind appears to be, you know, this forceful, short gust low to the ground, almost like an uncanny life form. Um, and the whole thing is is very dreamlike. It, it has something in common with another one of my very favorite films, Tree of Life, that comes much later. But I can't imagine this wasn't the very direct influence on um, how Malick put that film together. It's it's this consultation, uh, both films, between memory, uh, the various patterns of, of the aftermath of memory, how memory is still very much alive, but that the rearview image of it... Um, is, is, is something, um, I have another quote here, like uh, what is said in the film, fate followed behind in our footsteps like a madman with a knife. So there's something not um, very comforting about the past in the way that it's represented here. It's, it's sort of a, a constant source of trauma, um, even though the attempt is constantly being made to, to return to the past, um, the past is haunted. And some, some of the visual representations of the childhood home here uh, literally look like a horror film. Um, now, there's, uh, there's an attempt to make some visual and temperamental sense of our lives. That, that struggle is, 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 seems very central to the film's concerns. But it ultimately, I think, makes a convincing argument that there's no way of ordering it. There's no way of measuring it or accommodating it, um, except maybe in... And in a visual sense, um, it is a it is a very visual film, and um, some of its some of its visual puzzles I think are are better left just allowing them to to exist without trying to attach too much meaning to them. Because again, I think that dreamlike sense of the way it was made and um, the most appealing way to watch it for me is to just sort of like let it wash over you. But yeah, it's a it's an incredible film. The transfer is is gorgeous, and um, I I guess this might be the end of the line for Tarkovsky films in the collection, unless they can pull the other two away from Kino. Uh, Scott, I'll turn it over. to yeah, you. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, you're gonna run out of road in the future trying to pull more Tarkovskys into your end of the year list, uh, <laughs> no. bar, barring uh, any unfortunate destruction of Kino, which I would certainly not encourage anyone to uh, hasten. Um, yes, uh, you kind of ended where I was going to begin, which is just letting the film wash over you. You know, I've seen it three times. I, I don't have as clear 
an understanding of it um, as Jordan expressed, which he expressed very well, and I'm thankful for him for doing so because I certainly couldn't. Um, I, I just find the thing completely enrapturing um, moment to moment. There's not a single image that isn't totally arresting and um, like it certainly like stokes the imagination and provokes you to think about your own life, to imagine yourself in these dreamlike scenarios to just wash over the pure aesthetic experience of it um which is so well accomplished um there you know there's special effects stuff in here that i i couldn't imagine how they would have done in the 70s that is just completely seamless and clean and seems like a completely unreal thing that they just happened to capture um and the criterion's transfer here which i believe the restoration was done by moss film is really excellent i mean it looks absolutely gorgeous i've seen this on film a couple of times and I have absolutely no real great discrepancies between the two experiences. It's really well translated. The supplements too, I'm really glad they have these new documentaries that kind of speak to the way the film continues to resonate um, since it's making and since well after Tarkovsky's passing. And uh, as I kind of mentioned at the top, I love getting a big thick booklet. You know, in this case, we get some really valuable writing um, from Tarkovsky in terms of tracing the development of the film um, through a couple of different stages that are really well worth taking on if, after you've seen the film and um, start to kind of form an impression of it. And a great essay, too, by Carmen Gray. Yeah, I mean, this edition overall, I mean, I'm holding it at the moment, is just really kind of what I think drew me to Criterion on a very gut level, you know, 20 years ago or whatever I started picking them up. Uh, it's just a, a totally arresting cover, a really dense edition that kind of speaks to the value of the film and kind of bestows upon it certain values. Even if you haven't seen it, you're, you'd kind of pick up these things that, uh, well, you know, dating myself by referencing like borders or whatever, <laughs> but um, some yeah. some video store of the past, um, but just pick it up and see like, oh, wow, some put a lot of thought and effort into this. And well, that cover is really uh, interesting and I can't quite make sense of it. Uh, I should check this film out. And I think the whole package and design of it really um stokes the imagination the way the film does um so yeah i absolutely lo have always loved the film and couldn't have been more thrilled to see criterion handle it as well as they did you know for a cover that did kind of get some grief from the online community and of course it's it's going to happen especially for a film of this stature uh, i think the package is is really a big part of its if its appeal that, that allure that mystery and the simplicity the elegance of it is definitely uh you know pretty pretty outstanding and i i will also say i chose that as my number one and my comments will be following as the uh, episode gets edited together so yeah thanks thanks guys you summed it up pretty well uh even though there's more to be said and explored about that uh, wonderful film of tarkovsky's all right let's go and take a take a listen to jill's number one jill where are you gonna take us to the top of the year well um <laughs> this is a uh, I am as a Frederick March fan and as I've been working on a book on him and his wife uh, Florence Eldridge I am contractually obligated to select a <laughs> Frederick March film as my number one and that is Dorothy Arzner's Merrily We Go to Hell and first of all I am thrilled that so many people are uh, being introduced to Arzner's work. She uh, was and is uh, one of the most, I think she understood uh, telling women's stories at a time when 
Um, I think the 30s were uh, kind of, or at least pre-code 30s. Um, it was a great time for uh, women stars, uh, female stars, and for those stories. Um, in a way, it's hard. It's funny to say that because you go, God, you know, it was the 30s. It, uh, things were not necessarily equal, but I do think that um, the stories were far more interesting than some of the stories we get now. Um, and she was the one female film director uh, working in Hollywood at the time. And she was with uh, Paramount. And um, so very much a, a boys club. And she understood how to tell women's stories. And this film is very much a woman's story. And um, Sylvia Sidney, who... Um, you know, I think most people now, the general public, would know her from like Beetlejuice or from Mars Attacks um, because this woman was working all the way up to the end. But Sylvia Sidney was um, one of the great um, actresses of the 1930s, and she was at Paramount as well as Frederick March before he left and went independent. And um, Frederick March is actually, um, I think, the one actor who worked with Arsner the most. He was in several of her films. Um, this movie is the ultimate pre-code, um, made in 1932. Um, and we see a marriage that is, you know, built on um, mutual attraction and there's a lot of alcohol involved. And uh, shortly after the marriage, uh, there's some infidelity on Frederick March's character's part. And so they make a very modern decision to see other people. And so um, I just, I love that. And I love that they were able to work that into, uh, into the story. Um, also, we get a very young Cary Grant, who is playing Arm Candy for Sylvia Sidney, and he's in it for like a minute 20. And um, he's very, very sexy, but he doesn't know what the hell he's doing, which is so cute. Um, he just has his hands in his coat pockets the whole time. Um, this, the release itself is not uh, stacked. Um but I don't think it needs to be. I think the most important uh, part is that this film is available. Um, before, it was part of this, um, like, uh, you know, scandalous Hollywood box set or something. Um, it was like a pre-code box set that had this and had, I think, Hot Saturday uh, and a couple other, like, early Paramount. Um, pre-codes but that's been out of print for probably 15 years so just having this film available and having this new restoration is so important um, I actually and I think Scott might have been at this screening um, it was a, a triple was it a triple feature of Arsner films Oh, I was only there for a couple of them. I did see this at TCM Fest though. Okay, yeah, they showed this at TCM and then um and Carrie Beecham did the introduction for that. But they did, um, the New Beverly um, actually flew out for this. Uh, the New Beverly did a, um, a, a triple feature of Arsner. 
Um, and so the, uh, the print that they showed, and I think the print they showed at the TCM Fest was this restoration. Um, yeah. But the, um, so it looks beautiful. Um, the, uh, there's a video essay by Carrie Beecham, who, you know, like I said, introduced that screening that Scott and I were at. And um, a little fun fact is I had um, had a phone call with Carrie Beecham on January 6th. No further comment on the uh, what else was going on on that day, but um, it was a, that was occurring <laughs> while I was on the phone with her, and my phone was blowing up, and I'm saying, "Oh God!" Um, so, and we were talking about this film. Merrily we go to Helen. Yes, huh? we literally <laughs> that's what was happening. So um, yeah, I was on the phone with her, giving her a little bit of uh, background info on Frederick March and his career up to this point, and. Um, so I, in a way, had a, a very teensy, 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 tiny role in um, this release coming. And so I had a feeling when um, they did show that restoration at the festival that and that we have kind of had this um, Dorothy Arzner renaissance in the last few years. Um, and then especially when they um, released um, Dance Girl Dance, um, I I thought that this would uh come out and then when carrie had contacted me um back at the end of december i was like yes but then i had to keep my my mouth shut so um but anyways it's a beautiful film um i'm so glad that um ours i hope we get more arsner in the collection um and this is probably my favorite of her films um so although Craig's wife is is pretty fantastic too. Maybe we'll get that one at some point. But Yeah, I was gonna ask if there's any kind of obvious next picks, but yeah, I, I enjoyed this. This is very saucy, very Yeah, funny. and and I know <laughs> um, that yeah. some people um you know, they don't they don't like this film as as much as some of the other ones. Um, but this one I think Sylvia Sidney, I, I I just absolutely adore her. Um, but I, I am hoping that we'll get um, get some others. You know, uh, Craig's wife is is fantastic, or maybe the bride wore red um, would be a, a, another great one, um, or even like the wild party, which is not a fantastic film, but um, it's a Clara Bow um, early talkie, so that would be. And Frederick March is also in that. He's really really sexy. Um, so, you know, hopefully we'll see some more come out. It, w- it would be fantastic. Super. All right. Well, Josh, go ahead and give us your number one as we kind of wrap up or get close to wrapping up this round. What's your yeah. tops? Yeah. My favorite film, uh, that was released this year was, uh, Usman Simbene's Mandabi. And, uh, this, uh, Simbene is one of my favorite, uh, filmmakers i think he does just some incredible things i saw his uh, final film mulad uh in theaters uh when it played and uh just was really intrigued by him and uh was really excited when criterion released black girl several years ago and it was really great to get another of his films in the collection i think this is a uh really incredible Uh, film. This is the first film that was ever made in an African language, um, which I think is really an important uh, milestone, and uh, it's uh, an important release for Criterion as well. Uh, 
this is a very funny film, very uh, kind of bitterly acerbic. Uh, I really appreciate the ways that uh, Simben uh, approaches uh, his, uh, his takes takes politics and weaves that into his cinema, and uh, I really appreciate the contextualization that the special features do uh, in attempting to show uh, how he used. Um, politics and uh his writing to uh try to weave that into his his work as a filmmaker and uh realizing that film was going to be the uh, the the medium uh for which he could uh reach uh audiences and and try to push back against the the colonialism within his country and uh, across the african continent um this is, uh, again, a really good release. There are some great documentaries and uh, some great conversations. We have a short film by Simbene. And uh, there is uh, also a novella, the novella that the film was based on. And uh, there have been a few releases that include uh, the, the source material uh, this year. And uh, I always appreciate that. Uh, Smooth Talk included uh, the Joyce Carol Oates short story and and the Furies included the novel, uh, the the reissue of that. So anytime you can include the the printed word, uh, I'm always really excited about that packaging. Um, and uh, I love this film. And uh, again, it's uh, anytime you can get a dark political satire into the collection, um, uh, I'm I'm always there for it. And uh, this is a, a really, really fantastic film that uh, I hope more people are uh, willing to check out. Yeah, especially from that kind of post-colonial perspective kind of gives us living in the West a little bit of something to think about, you know, as far as our impact on the rest of the world and just the, the system that we're all a part of or, you know, like it or not, we have our, our roots in it. So, yeah, definitely great to bring uh, this this film to the spotlight so thanks a lot josh and as we kind of wrap up this call i do want to just thank all of you this has been a real blast for me just listening in uh i will splice my comments and trevor's on to the end as we get into our number one pick but as we wrap up this segment of the call or of the episode just want to thank you all for uh, sharing your insights and just such a great uh demonstration of the personality and the diverse tastes and experiences that we all bring to this and uh, yeah just thank you for uh, making this a uh, very special episode as we wrap up uh, this un unbelievable hell of a year that uh, is 2021 can i pop in for one correction for sure yeah um I, I realized that when i introduced mirror i called it tarkovsky's last film and I was kind of trying to lead up to that it was his last film probably joined the co collection. I do know that The Sacrifice is his last film. And I, just didn't, <laughs> okay. I just didn't want David to get emails. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I, I don't think anybody's going to lose sleep over that. The cascades of corrective uh, tweets and emails. Are, all yeah. right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Uh, all right, Trevor, the time has come for you to tell us your number one release of 2021. All right. It is Larissa Shepetko's The Ascent. Is it okay if my number one release is an upgrade? Uh, well, sure. <laughs> in a way, it's Here's not those. an upgrade, though, right? I mean, they released mm -hmm. this in an Eclipse set, never in their main line. And this year we got it on Blu-ray in their main line. And it was well-deserved. This film oh, yeah. is gorgeous to watch. It's black and white. To see it on Blu-ray was an emotional experience for me. Uh, the film itself is exceptionally emotional. 
um, just wintry and sad and just heartbreaking. And it's beautiful. It is captured in stunning photography. And again, to see it on Blu-ray. And we knew that, you know, I I didn't record that episode of the Eclipse Viewer with you. That was you and Rob. But you guys, I think, talked about how nice it would be to see this in HD. And here we got it. it. It's it's one of my favorite films of all time and to finally get an eclipse, you know, film broken out and, and Mm -hmm. released in this way, this is probably the one I would have chosen. And it came and it, it has stuck with me all year as my number one release. Yeah. I think, I think both the Boonwell and the ascent came out in January, Mm -hmm. but they, they've kind of held position for for each of us as amongst the competition there. Uh, so yeah, anything more you want to say about it or is that your nutshell I'm, summary? Uh, that's my nutshell summary. I'm good. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to slide it on over, staying in Russia here uh, with Andrei Tarkovsky's <laughs> Mirror, which is just, again, a spectacular package. Uh, it's got a fantastic uh, documentary, Andrei Tarkovsky, A Cinema Prayer, made by his son, which I think is... Well, like Mirror itself, these two films really are, like to me, the keys to Tarkovsky on that personal level. Again, linking it to my podcasting adventures of this year, uh, Solaris, of course, we did an episode of Criterion Reflections on Solaris, a 1972 film. I, I would have to say that that was probably the single most outstanding movie that I watched and reviewed over the course of this past year. Um, although I love all my podcast episodes, I love the, the conversations <laughs> and all that. I won't say that my Solaris episode was the best episode I did, but as far as a film, I think Solaris was clearly like just an outstanding all-time masterpiece. And so Mirror is the film that he made after that, after the uh, relative success of Solaris had bought Tarkovsky a little bit of freedom to do his thing. Um, he produced this very enigmatic, very personal a very impressionistic, nonlinear story uh, or series of vignettes, I, I think is a better way of putting it, about his memories growing up in the 1930s, his experiences during the Great Patriotic War, which is how the Soviets referred to what we call World War II, and also just some of the things that were happening in his society at that time, tensions between uh, the Soviet Union and, and Maoist China. Uh, and And, you know, the movie kind of, stumbles along or it just it just kind of strings these different impressions together and then all of a sudden just launches into this vastness of of context uh which is both very intimate personal and subjective but also just raises all kinds of themes about um life and the world around us our impressions our perceptions and some of the just most mind-blowingly exquisite beautiful mysterious scenes you know uh, you know, grass blowing in the wind, a woman levitating while a, a, a bird flies up around her. I was like, how did he get these images? I mean, it's one thing to dream them, to conceive them, but then the, the execution of, of these images and then the interspersed uh, footage of archival uh, you know, the soldiers slogging through the, the mud of this lake. Uh, the, the the massive rallies and in, in different you know parts of China and other parts of the world just it's just a, a kaleidoscope of, of scenes and impressions and images that is really moving I just watched it again last night and just kind of get lost in it and uh, the handsomeness of the criterion package mm-hmm. and all the other supplemental features it's just first class top shelf uh, this is this is the the 
the sweet spot of what Criterion is all about for me. So, yeah, I went with uh, three choices of films from the 1970s. Yeah, all old white guy that. auteurs. <laughs> <laughs> but I got, I guess, I just got to own it. The, the, those are the films that really spoke most powerfully to me. Again, I'll reiterate that uh, I appreciate that Criterion isn't just continuing to mine that singular vein. But uh, but that's what got me into Criterion in the first place, and I'm really glad that they were able to provide such stimulating content to uh, you know, to feed me, even as I uh, consider cinema from different angles and perspectives uh, through their more adventurous offerings of the past 12 months. So that's my number one for the year. <laughs> well, thanks, David. Uh, that Those are all worthy choices that are in contention of my list as well. Um, it 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 was a great year and and you're right i mean i picked a 1970s movie too is it just something in the air right now you know <laughs> for you and me um yeah. but well yeah, yeah. No, the ascent is right up there that's in my pantheon mm-hmm. uh perhaps top 10 certainly top 20 i'd have to sit down and get disciplined and figure it all out but <laughs> but yeah a, a fantastic release and definitely happy that uh, it's it's its own standalone showcase no. Since probably not a lot of people are buying Eclipse series uh, DVDs these days. Yeah, so I don't see it happen too much. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Trevor. It's been great talking with you. And for all of our other guests, I think this may be the final word as we close out this episode of Criterion Cast. So thank you for listening in, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. We welcome your feedback and follows on social media. And for those of you who support us on Patreon, a very earnest uh, collective thank you I give on behalf of all of us who uh, publish our work through the CriterionCast.com website. Of course, got to give a big shout out, hugs and love to Ryan Gallagher, our beloved webmaster and founder of this whole enterprise. Uh, who's kind of been tinkering behind the scenes, keeping everything up and running. Uh, We could not do any of this without all of the wonderful work and dedication he puts into it and has shown over all the years that this website's been around. So again, wish you all the happiest of New Year's as we get 2022 underway very soon, or maybe it's already here by the time you listen to it. Uh, But we look forward to much more great conversation and a mutual celebration of our love of cinema in the months and years ahead. So thanks for listening everybody. Bye-bye. I'd like to propose a toast. Here's to the ladies who lunch. Everybody laugh Lounging in their caftans And planning a brunch On their own behalf Off to the gym Then to a fitting Claiming their fat Cause they've been sitting, choosing a hat. Does anyone still wear a hat? I'll drink to that. Here's to the girls who stay smart, aren't they again? 
Rushing to their classes in optical art Wishing it would pass Another long 